moving where? Everwood, Colorado. Hey there, everybody. Angela Bowen here. And welcome to the very first episode of my new podcast, I Left My Heart in Everwood, an unofficial Everwood podcast. How's everyone doing today? I hope you're enjoying the new year. Of course, the episode I'm going to be discussing today is Season 1, Episode 1, entitled Pilot, which aired on September 16th, 2002. And here's the synopsis, courtesy of IMDb, and then I will read the one from the DVD booklet. Dr. Andrew Brown is a world-famous neurosurgeon whose career always overshadowed his obligations as a parent until the day that his loving wife died. Faced with the daunting task of raising his his two kids, 9-year-old Delia and 15-year-old Ephraim by himself, Andrew moves his family from New York to the beautiful Rocky Mountain town of Everwood, Colorado, where he opens a free medical clinic. Delia adjusts quickly to her new surroundings, but the sudden shift in everything he has ever known is hardest on Ephraim, who resents all the years his father lavished on his career at the expense of his family. Here is the DVD booklet description. A tragic loss spurs neurosurgeon Andrew Brown to abandon his thriving Manhattan practice and relocate with his son and daughter to folksy Everwood, Colorado. But a new start doesn't mean the Browns can avoid old problems. This episode has 8.2 out of 10 based on 119 ratings. So I want to go through the cast of characters real quick. We have Treat Williams, who plays Dr. Andrew Andy Brown. Gregory Smith plays 15-year-old Ephraim Brown. Vivian Cardone plays 9-year-old Delia Brown. The show, I'd like to let you know, focuses on two families. We have the Browns from New York and the Abbott family from Everwood, Colorado. We have Tom Amandez, I believe plays Dr. Harold Abbott. He is the father, head of the family. He is also wife to Rose Abbott, father to Bright Abbott, who is played by Chris Pratt, and daughter Amy Abbott, played by Emily Van Camp. So I believe, I'm guessing we don't meet Harold's wife in and Amy and Bright's mother in this episode, Rose. I guess she does appear in another episode. Marilyn Gann, G-A-N-N, plays Rose Abbott. We also have Deborah Mooney. She plays Edna Harper, who is Dr. Harold Abbott's mother. And Edna is married to Irv Harper, played by John Beasley. We have neighbor to Dr. Andrew Andy Brown. Played by the late Stephanie Nisnik, who portrays Nina Feeney, who lives with her young son, Sam. Yes, this is a R.I.P. She passed away in June of this year, and she was on the show for all four seasons. At some point in the show, she and 
Andy Brown, I believe it's, she's pretty, they're kind of, I don't think they ever really had a romantic relationship as much as you do get this kind of flirtatious on again, off again type of thing, but it never really went anywhere until the fourth season when eventually I believe Andy does admit his feelings to Nina. In season three, we do get Scott Wolf, alum from Party of Five, comes on as a new doctor. This episode is directed by Mark Piznarski. Writers Greg Berlanti, the creator, and two others. Roger Goekritz says credit only. Okay. We got some trivia here. It says Andy has been a brain surgeon for 15 years, so probably right around the time that his son Ephraim was born. Irv is the narrator slash voiceover. He will usually come in at the beginning of the episode and deliver a quote, and then I believe... At the end of the episode, he will also have another quote. Kind of like if you've seen Wondery Hill, the character Lucas Scott kind of in starts off the episode with a quote from a piece of literature. And then sometimes we'll also end the episode with a quote from literature. The town of Everwood has a population of just over eight or just over 9,000. It was found in 1853 with the one of the country's first opera houses, oldest gold mine, and third largest chili cook-off. Here's some goofs. When Ephraim is playing piano, the sound we hear doesn't match his finger movements. Near the end of the episode, after Ephraim's dad picks him up from school, they arrive home, and in a few shots, there is no license plate on the car. It reappears a few scenes later. We do have a soundtrack here for Let's Stay Together, written by A.L. Green, A.L. Jackson Jr., and Willie Mitchell, performed by A.L. Green. Irv comes in with a narr as the narration here. I wasn't there the day Dr. Andrew Brown's life changed forever, but like most folks in Everwood, I've heard the story enough times to be able to tell it. It begins where many stories begin, in the city of New York, where Dr. Brown lived comfortably with his wife and two children. So in playing the episode, the first scene we get is of the skyline of New York City. We get the beautiful trees, possibly overlooking Central Park, where Irv Harper's narration comes in. Now, I've been told, I've only watched, like, seasons one through three. I've watched season one and two multiple times, season three... A little bit. Season four, not really too much, just because I kind of dipped in and out of it. In fact, I never actually watched the series finale, so when that comes around in time in a couple years or so, that's going to be brand new. And I haven't watched season one of Everwood in at least a few years' time. But I think this shot is absolutely gorgeous. With I've never been to New York City, but from what I see here of this, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. It's a nice clear day, not a cloud in the sky, sun's out. But um, what I was going to say is Irv Harper doing the narration, the quote at the beginning of the episode, and I believe even at the end of the episode, it's kind of closing out the episode, are 
lines from a book that I believe later on in the series, like season, maybe season three or four, that he writes and eventually gets published. And a lot of the quotes are from his book. So we get a zoom cut to their apartment, or if it's not an apartment, it's a townhome. I'm not sure. And we do get to see Andy Brown's wife, Julia. It's just a typical morning where she's getting the kids ready to go to school. Andy is on his way to work as a neurosurgeon, or a brain surgeon, I'm sorry. Julia Brown calls out to Ephraim saying you're going to be late again. Delia, of course, in the beginning of the show is definitely a tomboy. Wears different types of sports caps depending on what team she's rooting for. They live in New York right now, so... I think it might be the New York Knicks. Delia is drinking her orange juice. Ephraim is getting his stuff put in his bag. Getting his lunch that his mom made. Andy, of course, this is clean-shaven Andrew Brown. I don't think he really takes on the persona of Andy Brown till they get to Everwood, Colorado, Colorado, and he gets one of those mountain men-type mustaches. Looks like he's perusing the New York Times. And right away, we do get the hostility of Ephraim with his father. As, uh, as Andrew Brown says somebody's unusually quiet this morning to Ephraim. As Ephraim, not even looking at his dad's like, well, somebody's unusually interested. It's like... Ugh. But then again, I guess you could kind of chalk it up to Ephraim being a typical teenager with the attitude. Or you could pretty much chalk it up for the fact that Andrew Brown, Dr. Brown, has been in and out of Ephraim's life, constantly, always, practically living at the office. That's probably most likely the type of life of a doctor. If you're going to have a family and kids, you're probably not going to see them very often. Or as often as you like, you're probably going to miss birthday parties, school activities. In Ephraim's case, a uh, music recital for school because Ephraim is a pianist. So Julia Brown pretty much just chalks her son's attitude up to him being nervous about the recital. Like, don't worry, your dad and I will be there. And Ephraim's like, you're yeah, right. As Ephraim walks away, Julia Brown, after Andrew Brown, is all like, what, his recital's tonight? And she's like, honey, I've told you like ten times. So, the recital's at eight. Of course, Ephraim's going with a friend, and Julia, Delia, and Dr. Brown are going at seven, because it's New York, and you want to make sure you get there in plenty of time. An hour hopefully will be enough time in case of any backups or issues. Of course, Dr. Brown takes delight in ridiculing the fact, like, of all the piano teachers in New York City, why does my son have to study in New Jersey? And it's like, well, the best is in, New in, in Jersey, so I don't know what to tell you. So we get the first line from <laughs> Delia, as she's like, well, the, the, the Giants play in Jersey, because... Dr. Brown's like, well, I didn't think Jersey had the best anything. Yeah, I'm sure Jersey will disagree with you hardly. Very, very much. So Dr. Brown is with a, a patient, and he's going over x-rays of the brain and telling the client what is going on. He calls it the great white of brain tumors. It's malignant and grows 
quickly. So malignant is bad, benign is good, right? Glioblastoma multiforme. So what I've read, it says glioblastoma is the most aggressive cancer that begins within the brain. It's very rare, fewer than 20,000 cases per year in the U.S. Requires lab tests or imaging. Treatments can help manage condition. Unfortunately, there is no cure. Can last several years or be lifelong. The exact cause is not known. It is associated with certain genetic changes and environmental factors. So the patient's wife here kind of cuts Dr. Brown off saying, look, we've been to other specialists. We know all this already. They say it's inoperable, but we came to you because you're the best. And Dr. Brown's reputation precedes him. Like, he, he is the best. He is very, very good at what he does. When all other doctors fail, this is the guy you want to go to. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's going to be 100% honest with you. So Dr. Brown says I'm going to go after this with radiation. And he's willing to go after the cancer with everything he's got starting with radiation therapy, followed by an immediate and massive surgical resection. I don't know what that is. Of course, the patient says, thank you. And Dr. Brown, he's getting a little bit, he's getting, he's got a swell. <laughs> but he's like, hey, don't thank me now. Thank me when I save your life. So Irv is still narrating here, as he says, night fell and a nasty storm rolled in. So Dr. Brown's on the phone with some other specialists going over this case. And a nurse comes in and reminds him about his son's recital. And Dr. Brown is so distracted, he's like, it's 7 o'clock already? And she's like, well, no, it was 7 o'clock a half hour ago when you told me to remind you the first time. So, unfortunately, Dr. Brown is not going to be able to make it. And he tells the nurse to tell his wife to go ahead to the recital without him. But... Julia called to say that she was leaving to the recital and to remind you, Dr. Brown, that you are a lousy husband slash father. Yeah, it's 7.30. It's not happening. Now it's just after 9.10. It's like 9.12 at this point. As Irv narrates, in his usual fashion, Dr. Brown worked late again. And he worked so late, he was still at the hospital when he received the news about his wife. Two cops come in as Andy is already out of his office and he's walking into the hallway. The police officer asks the receptionist, is Dr. Andrew Brown here? And Andrew turns around and says, I'm Dr. Andrew Brown. And Irv says in narration, there has been, it seemed, an accident. You don't hear what the police officer oh there are two men there and only one of them the one who's speaking to andrew brown takes off his hat in respect sadly andy's wife never made it home to the from may oh hold on andy's wife never made it from home to their son's recital that night so i'm guessing then was Del delia had to be in the car with her right so she wasn't injured her life was taken tragi tragically on the icy highway in between. And you just see Dr. Andrew Brown trying to take in this information as he is holding his briefcase and just the shock of, a, of it all just drops right on the floor there. So they say icy highway, then this has got to be some time in... If it's icy, then it's got to be at least 
late fall then. Now we cut to a cemetery where the family and other family and friends have gathered to pay their respects at the funeral of Julia Brown. And there is snow all over the ground now, so it has clearly definitely got to be late November. I'm just going to start calling him Andy Brown. I mean, because Dr. Andy Andrew Brown is just some, such a mouthful. So he grabs a shovel that's nearby with some dirt and puts it on his wife's casket. We see Delia there wearing a dress, a nice heavy coat because it's winter. And of course, Ephraim is there wearing a suit. Both kids just look absolutely broken. So Andy takes his daughter's hand and starts walking away. Notices that Ephraim just is just standing there. He's not going to follow. And Andy just kind of gives him a minute. Like, alright, he'll be along when he's ready. I mean, if you think about it, Ephraim Brown's mother is like the closest parent. You know, the parent that he was really close to, he doesn't really have a good relationship with his father. Or if you even want to call it a relationship. Because... All Ephraim knows about his dad is his dad is a neurosurgeon. He's always working. He's always, that's all he knows about his dad. And he's going to divulge in that later on when he meets Amy Abbott. So Irv continues to narrate as he says the Browns did the best they could to get by, pretending as though nothing had changed. We see Delia sitting at her desk in her room. We see Andy, arms stretched out against a doorway. We see Ephraim in his room, giant headphones on his head, just trying to block out everything. So Andy Brown just goes back. He f goes full force, hardcore, back to work. Like, this is the best thing for me to deal with my grief is just to get back into work again. Of course, he has a surprise here when he gets there. So, Mr. Saddlebrook is the name of his patient, the one with the, uh, the brain cancer. So, the big day tomorrow, which is the operation day, like, you ready for it? And the patient, I like how, I mean, he heard about the tragedy that Andy Brown suffered. And even though this guy's going to be going under the knife the next day to deal with this brain cancer... He still finds it in his heart to be able to basically give his condolences to his doctor, who just saved, suffered a major loss, of, you know, the loss of his wife. So Andy lets that sink in, puts his flipboard down, looks at his patient, and asks him this question. If you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? His patient says, Hershey, Pennsylvania. I've never been. And Mr. Saddlebrook says that's where I was brought up. And he says, you know, that my parents' farm is up there. Andy Brown tells him, go there. Basically, go there now, today. And Andy Brown says, look, I, I can't save your life. He says, at best, I could prolong it eight months, maybe a year. So basically, he's telling him, with what time you have left, the one place in the world you want to be is in Hershey, Pennsylvania, at your parents' farm. Go there and do that and spend the time you have left soaking in those memories and just being there and immersing yourself in it. Just, as people say, mm, 
Nobody wants to die in a hospital. Nobody wants to die in a hospital, especially if they've been suffering, you know, with a disease and everything. Um, in the movie Beaches, uh, the character played by Barbara Hershey, who ends up sadly passing away at the end, looks at her friend Cece, played by Bette Midler, and says, I want to go home. She says, I don't want my daughter to see me here. I don't want to die in the hospital. And I remember Bette Midler's character going out to the receptionist desk and saying, I'd like to know what I can do to get my friend here released from the hospital. And I just remember the nurse saying, do you know how sick she is? You know, telling this to Bette Midler's character, Cece, and she says, yes, I do know how sick she is, but I know that she doesn't want her daughter to see her suffering and dying in a hospital. So luckily, they do release her. She is able to go home to the beach house, and that is where she passes while that song, Wind Beneath My Wings, plays. And oh my gosh, guys, if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen that movie, you want something to emotionally break, you want to have a good cry? Watch that movie. Watch that movie. Watch Terms of Endearment. Watch Steel Magnolias. And just cry your heart out. Because they... If, if you don't cry at the end of those movies, I don't know. <laughs> Something's not right there. But I like that Andy is honest with this man and says, I cannot save your life. I know he talked a big talk saying, thank me when I save your life. But he's full on admitting it. It's like, I, I can't. I've talked with other professionals. I know that I'm world-renowned. I'm a famous doctor for saving lives, but I can't save yours, and I don't want to make you a promise saying that I can, because I'd be lying, basically. And he just tells this man, you go live out the rest of your days at the one place that you know that you will be happy. Well, he even says, you know, if I did the surgery, most of that time that you'd have, you'd be barely coherent recovering from surgery. It's like nobody wants that for themselves. And Andy Brown says, statistics don't measure quality of life. That's the thing, yeah, hospitals will keep you there because you have a terminal illness, so they can bilk you for everything that you have, and then they end up leaving your family with all the bills left over. And Dr. Andy Brown says, if you have even the slightest hope of preserving your own, you'll get out of this bed and go there today to Hershey, Pennsylvania, to your parents' farm as fast as your legs can carry you. Like, don't take anything with you. Just go. So this is the decision that Dr. Brown makes. Based on what he's told this guy, what he's gotten from this guy, he gets it in his head. It's like, I need to separate myself from everything that I, that is my wife. And that is this house I live in, this state I live in. He, he wants to get away. He wants to get away from all of that. So now we cut to the apartment where Ephraim's like, moving where? And Andy says, Everwood, Colorado. And Delia, of course, not your old Delia, is like, where's that? I don't know where that is. And Ephraim's such in a fit of irritation. It's like, it's in Colorado, goofily. Oh, he calls her a moron. Like, it's Colorado, moron. He just said it. Everwood, Colorado. I want to play this clip here of him dropping this bomb on these kids. They already suffered the loss of their mother. Now they're going to have to be moving from everything they know that is familiar to them. Moving where? 
Okay, well, why are we moving there? Somebody told me about it once. He said it was the most beautiful place they'd ever seen. <laughs> it's on this hill. Or is it a mountain? Maybe it's on a hill by a mountain. Anyway, I was thinking last night that we should move there. What do you say? I say that's not even a reason. I know. How great is that? We'd be moving someplace for no reason at all. That's not great. That's crazy. That's Harrison Ford and Mosquito Coast crazy. You say crazy. I say it might be the sanest thing I've ever done. Now, I want this to be a democratic decision, so we're going to put this to a vote. Everyone who wants to move and get their own horse, raise your hand. Well, that decides it. Democrat, you bought her vote. <coughs> That's the American version. Yeah, I, I want you to remember this moment. Right, this is the moment you conspired with the psycho to ruin whatever was left of our pathetic little lives. So Abermas is damn the most obvious question, like, well, why are we moving there? And he's like, well, somebody told me it was about it once. They said it was one of the most beautiful little towns ever to exist. He's like, well, it's on a, this hill, or is it a mountain? Maybe it's on a hill by a mountain. I don't know, but otherwise, we're moving there. He just thought of this idea last night. Oh, my God. Like, all right, kids, what do you say? And, of course, everyone's like, I say that's not even a reason. And Andy comes back with, I know, how great is that? We'd be moving to a place we've never been for no reason at all. And Ephraim brings up the movie Mosquito Coast with Harrison Ford, which also has River Phoenix in it, about a guy that moved to... All right, Mosquito Coast, 1986. An inventor spurns his city life and moves his family into the jungles of Central America to make a utopia. This movie is based on a Paul Thoreau novel. And this was right around, 1986 was right around the time that Stand By Me came out. Has anybody ever done that? Decided to move to a place, just up and move somewhere with no regard for anything, for, you know, a job, the place that you live. You just pick up and boom, you just leave. You just, I, I've never done that. I've never, I'm a planner, I'm a thinker, I, I want to make it's like you want to cross off those box, check those boxes off. I'm not honestly, I'm not one for going somewhere and having nothing to start out with. That scares me to death. Granted, Andy Brown does not have to worry about that. He lives in New York City. He's gonna sell that that apartment. He's gonna get a lot of money for it, and he's gonna use it to get a place in Everwood, Colorado. I get it that he wants to kind of separate himself from from everything about his wife right now and just start fresh, start new. So Andy's like, all right, I want this to be a democratic decision, so we're going to put it to a vote. Whoever wants to move to Everwood, Colorado and get their own horse, boom, Adelia's hand shoots into the air. And Ephraim's like, well, wait a minute. No, you bought her vote. You can't do that. And, of course, Andy Brown says, yeah. He says, Democratic, you bought her vote. And Andy Brown says, yeah, that's the American version. So he walks off. Ephraim turns to his sister and says, okay, I want you to remember this day because this is a day that you can conspire, you conspire with a psycho. Like, ay ay ay, Ephraim. <laughs> what a sullen, angry young man. So Ephraim's not the only one dealing with Andy, you know, all of them leaving. Turns out Andy Brown's leaving caused quite a stir in the medical community. A lot of people are just scratching their heads like, why would this guy who's a world-renowned brain surgeon just up and drop everything and just leave? Apparently Time Magazine was so intrigued they wanted to write a story about it. 
And now we see that their house, everything has been packed into boxes and put in a moving van and being moved to Everwood, Colorado. They called Andrew Brown's departure from medical surgery one of the great losses of modern medicine. Oh, for heaven's sake. So we get, I'm thankful that this is not the theme song that they use, but for the first episode, I, I don't like it. It's a folksy, bluesy mix of a song. So we see a church, we see some roads in Everwood, Colorado, just to give it a nice country down-home feel. Not southern feel, but kind of a wilderness country feel. We are now in the new house. Andrew Brown is making some eggs and whatnot for his family for breakfast. Probably one of the first times ever that he's really had to cook for them. So it looks like it's the first day of school that the kids are going to. And Delia comes in. She's got a new... She loves to wear these baseball caps. Loves them. She puts a hand over the top of it. So you can't really see what it is. And she's like, all right, Dad, guess. He's like, uh, Rangers? And she's like, nope. Takes her hand away. He's like, oh, the Rockies. Somebody's acclimating. Acclimating? Good for you. So Delia is... She she's fitting right in. She's accepting of this move. Ephraim is an entirely different story. Which I don't know. I think sometimes it seems like kids are more easily able to acclimate to new situations when it comes to like moving and stuff, like easily making friends and stuff like that. Where teenagers, it's an entirely different story because you are dealing with teenagers who are all over the place in their emotions and peer pressure and all that stuff. So, he puts some eggs in front of her, and she smells like, Dad, this really doesn't smell right. He's like, all right, fine. I mean, I get it. We're late. We're, we're running late. So, but you gotta drink all that vitamin C orange juice. So, Delia gives her dad a little scrap of info how Ephraim read that high doses of vitamin C cause blindness in lab rats. Like, sweetie, you are not a lab rat. Your brother's not a doctor. Drink the orange juice. So, she don't even have time to drink that orange juice because that bus is honk, honk, honk right outside. She's like, oh no, where's my lunch? He's like, oh dang, I forgot to make it, honey. I'm sorry. Here, here, here's some money. He hands her a bill and she's like, I don't think they'll change a 50. So he trades it in and gives her some singles instead. Yeah, you gotta trade those 50s in for some 20s, 10s, and 5s, and 1s. <laughs> you gotta acclimate to Everwood, Colorado's money. So, he goes out with Delia in the hallway, like, I'm gonna help you do this, and she stops, turns around, puts a hand up, like, Dad, please, I can do this. He's like, all right, I understand. You want to do this alone. Good girl. And she tells him, it's a big step for me, because I bet anything in New York, her mom probably drove her to school, so taking the bus is a big step. Bus doors open. We see Delia take the first couple steps onto the bus. Because there's really only, what, maybe two or three steps to get onto the bus. And this is where we meet Irv. Irv, the narrator of the episodes. And husband of Edna Harper. And stepfather to Harold Abbott. So... Herb has some 
old-timey music. And he looks at Delia and says, Rosemary Clooney, my, my, my. Of course, Delia's like, no, my name's Delia Brown. He's like, well, actually, um, I like to note the song that's playing when somebody gets on my bus for the first time. I like that. This is so cute. I like that he does this because he says he feels like the, whatever song is playing when he first meets a new kid entering his bus for the first time, he feels it kind of tells him something about this child. And, and of course, Delia mispronounces Mary Rose Clooney. What does she tell you about me? And Irv just kind of looks at her bed and sounds like, she tells me that you and I are going to get on just fine. Irv, it's such a sweetheart. Aww. And he tells her that the kids call him Mr. Irv. Do you remember the first time you took your steps onto a, a school bus for the first time? Or maybe starting a new school year, getting a new bus driver? Stuff like that. I mean, those are monumental moments. And it's little moments like that, that sometimes, like, a certain smell, you know how smell, like, can affect your memory and stuff like that? Like, something you haven't smelled in a long time? Little things like that, every once in a while, just be, like, going along, whether I'm in a store or I'm at my job or I'm here at home, and something will just come along and... Boom. It's like I get that flashback of taking those steps onto a bus as a as a child. So we're back inside the house now. Ephraim's coming down for school. So Andy was going to take Ephraim. However, Ephraim's having none of it. Like, I'm going to ride my bike there. Meanwhile, you guys, it's, there's snow on the ground. I mean, I gotta applaud people, really, that can take their bike and ride it in the snow. I mean, wow. I just, I couldn't do it. I mean, granted, I'm sure, I mean, bike tires are a lot different from car tires. <laughs> so, Andy's just trying to be hospitable here to his son. Like, hey, I can drive you. And everyone's like, yeah, I appreciate the offer, but you're about 10 years too late. So he just wants none of this from his father. Like, I get it. You're trying to be a good dad for the first time ever, but I really would rather do this on my own without your help. Everyone's like, the less he's got to see of his father, the better it is for him. Because he's used to his dad not being there. Dang, he hightails it out of there. So Andy's on the porch, and he hears this noise, and he sees this little makeshift greenhouse, and this little boy bundled up, and he's got this little toy, like, hoe or, or rake that he's, like, hitting some stuff. And it's just, oh, it's so cute. We get to meet Sam Feeney, who is the son. He's probably about, what, four or five years old, maybe? Um, he is the son of Nina Feeney. And I love what Andy says here. You're a, you're not a plant. And Sam comes out and says, I'm a boy. <laughs> it makes me think of um, Chronicles of Narnia when uh, she meets Mr. Tumnus. And she's like, I'm a girl. <laughs> This little boy does not have a British accent, but it just made me think of it. I love the soundtrack to Chronicles of Narnia, the one from 2005. So beautiful. So beautiful. So now we meet Nina as she comes over to introduce herself to Andy. Says, I see you've met my resident horticulturalist. 
Because it looks like it's something that's definitely made for a child. There's mainly just flowers in there. But I don't even think Nina would be able to... She would not be able to stand up in that. Because the roof looks like it's maybe... Three and a half to four feet tall. It's not very tall. I wouldn't even be able to get in there without having to crouch down. I like this little meet-cute here between uh, Nina and Andy. She's like, you're Dr. Brown, right? And he's like, please, Andy. And he's like, well, how did you... Uh, and she's like, oh, small town Andy. You, you'll figure it out. This guy is the literally the talk of the town. Like, the whole town is buzzing. I mean, when you get a big city New York doctor coming to your small little town of Everwood, Colorado, which hardly probably gets any new visitors, it's a big deal for this town. Because everyone's kind of wondering why this guy all of a sudden showed up. Like, there's a story behind it. Nobody knows why, but there are definitely speculations. They all read the article in Time magazine, so they're getting little tidbits. But do you know how magazines tend to basically embellish things? Yeah. Alright, now we are headed to Everwood High School. Home of the Miners. Apparently, Ephraim is not the only one who rides their bike to school, but we hear a bunch of kids laughing. We don't see them yet, but we see someone say, nice hair color, because Ephraim... You couldn't really see it at first because he was inside and it was kind of dark. There was no real light inside the house. But he's got kind of a purplish fuchsia plum colored hair, which really doesn't stand out because his hair is already a dark brown color. So these kids are already ragging on Ephraim, calling him a freak. Like, hey, what's with the hair, man? You They run out of green at the store? And Ephraim doesn't really say anything at first. And the other guy who's with this guy who called him a freak says, Hey, you, my friend asked you a question. And I love Ephraim's response. He's like, well, I don't speak dumbass. So basically translate it for him. Like, yeah, he ain't taking crap from people. He ain't doing that. Oh, the guy's like, oh, where's your manners? Answer his question. And Ephraim's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't understand. You see, I don't speak dumbass. But he's like, but since you obviously do, maybe you could translate for me. <laughs> oh, solid. So up on this wall here, this brick little uh, retaining wall, we got four girls all wearing dark jackets except for one who is wearing a lilac colored jacket with a periwinkle fuzzy scarf. This girl, of course, is... The youngest Abbott child, known as Amy Abbott. So, she's looking, she's she's checking him out, like, okay, I like this sarcasm. I'm gonna, he, definitely, I mean, these kids have been going to this school for years. If anyone new shows up, immediately people are gonna start to ragging on him. They're gonna, they're gonna want to sniff out the deets. So, I want to play Ephraim and Amy's first interaction with each other. I find it best when you look any unfamiliar bully to strike her with sarcasm. Yeah, it makes them wonder whether or not I have some secret butt-kicking prowess they're unable to detect. Wow. You really have this thought out. Yeah, spend as much time inside a gym locker as me. You have a few theories of your own. Are they really that horrible to you in New York? How'd you know it's from New York? That new doctor you just moved to, he's your father, right? Yeah, if you use the term father loosely. Ever since that article in Time, he's all anyone can talk about around here. Yeah? Well, what do they say? 
Mostly they just wonder why he came. Oh. They figure it out. Let me know. You really don't know why you came here. <laughs> Whacked. I know. I think it's wild. Sometimes I wonder if my dad's the most boring man alive. <laughs> There's the bell. We should eat lunch sometime. Wait. What's your name? Amy. And I like your hair. So at this point, I don't know if you could really say if she is, if Amy's interaction with him is purely genuine or if it's more, he has an ulterior motive. If you've watched the show, that could probably seem like that could be why, because he is the son of the doctor, Andy Brown. She was really impressed with the way that Eph Ephraim handled those bullies out there. And he says, well, I like to hit him with sarcasm because that way they can kind of think to themselves whether or not they should mess with me. Like maybe I have some secret butt kicking prowess they don't know about. And she's like, wow, you really know how to handle yourself. He's like, well, when you are pushed into lockers, into gym lockers as often as I was, you kind of gotta... He tells her, if you spend as much time as I did in a gym locker, you'd have a few theories of your own on how to handle bullies. And he's like, wow, were they really that horrible to you in New York? And his ears kind of perk up at that, like, how did you know I was from New York? She's like, well, yeah, your dad, right? He's the doctor from New York. That's, you know, why you moved here. And apparently everyone read Time Magazine. They're all wondering why this Dr. Brown moved here to Everwood, a small town. And... Abram's like, well, tell you what, if you, any of you find out, feel free to let me know, because I'm still scratching my head about that. So the bell rings, just as Amy's like, hey, we should have lunch sometime. And that is kind of like, okay, there's some ulterior something. The fact that she would say, we should have lunch sometime. I mean, she was hanging out with three other girls. She looks like she could be popular. And she also adds before she leaves, I like your hair. Because as the bell rings, he's like, oh, shoot, I didn't get her name. Hey, what's your name? But he does it with kind of like a nod of the head, like smirk kind of look. Like he enjoyed talking with her, like, oh, I want to get your name. And she's like, oh, it's Amy Abbott. And Amy makes a joke about her dad thinking he must be the most boring man alive because she's been in Everwood her whole life. That's a cool looking school hallway because they have like these wooden beams all throughout the hallway here and there. But they look like really rough cut wood. Like if you touched it with your finger, you'd get a splinter. Excuse me, a splinter. And everyone's just amazed. Probably no pretty girls. And Amy is a pretty girl. No pretty girls at New York probably even looked his way. They all probably viewed him as the same quote unquote freak with the purple hair as. They do here. I actually, now that I think about it, probably not because it seemed like some of the people that Ephraim would hang around with also had different, like green hair, blue hair, so on and so forth. So Andy's walking around in town. You got all these people that are just hanging out, casually walking, and they're all like side eyeing 
Andy as he's walking with a realtor who clearly set him up with the house that they're in. She's like, if you like the house, you are sure to absolutely adore these offices. Because, you know, Andy's a doctor. He needs to get an office set up. Andy's oblivious. He's like, wow, Mrs. Baxter, why is everyone staring at us? And she's like, well, not us, you. You're quite the celebrity in this town. How many of those people have ever set foot in New York? Any of them, really. Probably next to none. This lady is so nosy because she, like everyone else, is wondering what brought him to Everwood. Like, to our little corner of the world. He's like, oh, yeah, I saw it on a map. He's like, oh, you're so funny. Actually, really seriously, everybody's wondering why you moved here. And it's like, she, of course, being the realtor, figures, well, if anyone's going to get the deets on why this guy came here, it's going to be me. And being he's a doctor, everyone kind of wants to know what type of a practice that he's going to set up here in Everwood. There's apparently been some talk that he's here to do some top secret brain research. What? Who's going to be his research patient, you? He just tells her, look, it's just a general practice that I'm opening up. Nothing special. And he says that and he keeps walking, but he stops because he realized that this realtor, Mrs. Baxter, has also stopped. He's like, why? Is there something wrong with that? There's already a family practice in that town, long-standing by Harold Abbott and his mother, Edna, who's the secretary. And... I mean, small towns have more than one doctor there, but is everyone so small that they can't have two doctors? Especially a big city doctor probably feel like, oh, that's going to take a lot of uh, clientele probably from this other doctor, Dr. Abbott, who's seen these patients for years and years and years. Plus, I thought it was also his father was also a doctor. Because at one point, her, his mother, Harold's mother, calls him Junior. So he might be Harold Abbott Junior. And he's like, is there a problem with that? And she's like, well, you are aware we already have a family doctor here. And he's like, well, yeah, of course. But surely a town can use two doctors. And she doesn't want to be wrong. She's like, oh, well, yeah, of course we can. Like, she needs that sale. <laughs> she needs that other sale, not just on the house, but on this practice that he's going to open up. All right, here we go. We're meeting Dr. Abbott, Amy's father, Dr. Harold Abbott. And this guy, he's a nice enough guy, but he's very kind of stoic and no-nonsense kind of character. And, of course, this guy, who's probably a patient of his, he's an older man, goes up to him and starts talking about a problem he has. It's like... Dude, you need to wait till you get to the office, because he's not just going to give you free medical advice. He's probably going to send you a bill for that. So the guy's like, I have a... He, Harold deals with this kind of stuff, especially from the older folk that just feel like they can just stop him on the street and just, like, ask a question. And he's got a problem with his knee. It's been going on for three years. Like, And Harold's like, okay, let me guess. Is this a sharp pain or a throbbing? And the guy is like, conflicted like oh it's a throbbing I mean sharp pain and it's like and Harold's like look I got an appointment at Friday 2.15 it's yours if you want you can come in then and the guy's this gentleman's like he's walking with a cane he's like can you just check me out here and I'm thinking are you serious you're standing on snow on a sidewalk 
Oh my gosh. You trip and fall, that's a lawsuit. And Harold even says, as I've explained to you before, there are insurance regulations that prohibit me from diagnosing you without a proper checkup. It's like, you need to come in at the appropriate time. I will check you out then. If he just diagnosed willy-nilly and it ended up being wrong, he could be sued. He can lose his license. It says H. Abbott General Practitioner. And Harold's like, well, a little pain can become a big lawsuit. And I'm with Harold. I mean, he might be a stuffed shirt. But seriously? I wouldn't want a, a, a lawsuit. So, <laughs> I love how Harold gives this scenario. Let's say I diagnose with an osteoarthritic condition and invite you to purchase aspirin. He says, you adhere to my suggestion, and this evening, you dropped dead. He's like, again, hypothetically, of a brain disorder expressing itself unilaterally in your left leg. He's like, can you imagine the malpractice case that your family would have against me? Like, just because this guy drops dead doesn't mean his family won't come after Harold. And he says, I don't make the rules, I just live by them. So definitely Harold is an old-fashioned... Well, it's not old-fashioned to follow the rules, but he just, that's just how he is. That's what he does. He says, Friday, 2.15. You'll be fine till then. It's like he see it, it seems his attitude, he gets this all the time from these older folk. They want to not have a bill, so they figure, I stop him on the street, he looks at my knee, and then I can go on my way. No. No, that's not how that works. So Andy is looking at this office, and it's pretty, it's pretty plain looking, slate gray paints. And she's like, see, it's just like the big city, you know, the office is there. And he's like, yeah, I spent my entire life in this office. This is exactly the office I'm trying to get away from. He doesn't want practical. And apparently she thinks she can hook him with the DSL capability, because this is 2002. Cell phone capabilities were not the greatest. You couldn't text, you couldn't FaceTime, you couldn't Facebook, you couldn't Instagram or Twitter or any of that hoo-ha. It's really bare bones with the most basic looking doctor office furniture you ever did see. So Andy excuses himself and he's like, you smell that? And she's like, oh yeah, it's my perfume. Estee Lauder, white linen. <laughs> he's like, no, no, no. It's coming from across the street. So apparently he knows the scent of the perfume. It's called Jeanette. It was popular in Europe in the early 80s. He's just walking in the middle of the road as we got cars coming. And he's not even using a crosswalk. And the realtor just trying not to get run over as she's following him while he explains about this perfume and its history. So the guy named the perfume, this Frenchman, after his fiancée, who died, well, when she died, he discontinued the perfume, which made it increasingly difficult to surprise my wife with every Christmas. Interesting. Okay, so there is a little grocery store on the corner. That's cool. So Andy has found a, a gem, a diamond in the rough, if you will. As he's looking up at this old boarded place that has a little clock tower and says Everwood on it. He's like looking after me at it amazed. Like, what is this place? And she's like, this offensive monstrosity? Apparently it was a train depot till the city shut it down. So F or F, Andy was 
smelling his wife's old perfume, which led him to this, like, like, almost like she's sending him a sign. Like, honey, no, you don't want this generic-looking office that reminds you of all the other offices you worked at in New York. No, you want this beautiful train station, which can be eventually fixed up to look like a doctor's office. Shut down about 10 years ago because the city wanted to reroute the trains and everything like that. Safer approach through the mountains. Gotcha, gotcha. And this place, all the windows, even the door is boarded up. But Andy's like, I want to look inside. And it's like, if it's dilapidated, I would be very careful going in there. It's pulling off the slats that are boarding up this door to keep him from entering. So this lady's freaking out, like, oh, be careful, you don't know what type of animal might have taken up residence, or God forbid, a hobo. <laughs> but Andy sees potential. So Baxworth, not Baxter, Bax Mrs. Baxworth is just grossed out, freaked out, wants to get out of there. But Andy... His he comes alive like his eyes light up as the possibilities of what he can do with this building. His new office, I think it's great. He's got the money to repair it and do all that stuff to it. So now we get to a scene that you'd probably be wondering how did this happen so fast? That Ephraim is showing Amy one of his manga, manga manga comics or whatever, and he's just explaining, like, the hero's civilian life is as important to the story as their secret identity. He explains, this is really interesting, how he explains it's not just Clark Kent waiting to turn into Superman, it's Superman waiting to turn into Clark Kent. And right away, this should tip you off that this is not even real. As she says, I never knew. Because she's like looking right into Ephraim's eyes as she says this. I never knew comics could be so hot. Like, oh boy. And he's like, hot? And he's even taken aback by this. Like, whoa, whoa. And this is where they pump in the Al Green music. She's saying stuff like, have you ever heard of a perfect makeout song? And he's like, oh yeah, <laughs> several. <laughs> like, not really. And she gets up and crooks her finger at him for him to get up and follow. Apparently hers is Al Green's Let's Stay Together. Yeah, right. I highly doubt it. And she is like circling him almost like a shark circles his prey in the water. She says, I think it speaks to a girl's dual desires. To be held and ravaged simultaneously. As she is like touching his shoulders. Not in a literal sense. It's more primal. Like uh huh. And she's like just listening to this song right now. Makes me want to take off my clothes. You don't even really hear what she says after. Because she's like whispering in his ear. It's clearly she like basically is wanting to get naked with him. And rub all against his naked body. And he's like right here. I mean in front of everybody. Because the lights are all dimmed down low. And you got this spotlight from above, and it's just like, yeah, you know this is a dream. When I first saw this episode, I remember thinking, I couldn't think it, like, oh, this is pretty forward of her. They, like, just met. But no, it actually is a dream. And she kisses him right as we hear the beep, beep, beep. It's an alarm going off. So Ephraim wakes up, sits up in bed, and has his look on his face like oh boy lifts his covers and realizes what happened yes it is every teenage boy's worst nightmare from when they wake up in the morning ew 
So granted, he doesn't want to face any more embarrassment of his father asking questions, so he decides to do his own laundry and wash his sheets. Granted, it doesn't get past Andy, wondering why Ephraim is washing his bed sheets. And Ephraim just says, look, I spilled something on him. And, and Andy's like, okay, what do you spill? Chocolate milk, I don't know. And Ephraim's just like, oh, I, do, I can't, ugh. And Andy's like, when did we get chocolate milk? I mean, I get the groceries. I don't remember that. It's like, oh, stop. I'm not drawing you a picture. So Ephraim's pretty much dressed for school. He's just chucking stuff in the washer. So Ephraim leaves the washroom, which also serves as a partial pantry. Andy grabs some pancake mix. Like, hey, I'm making pancakes. You want some? And Ephraim's reply from down the hallway is, go to hell. So now we get a scene of somebody getting out of their car from seat level. You see the fancy shoes. You see the plaid pants. Base black and white plaid pants. Why's he got a golf club? Why's Harold got a golf club? So it turns out this is the first time that the doctors meet each other. Granted, I don't believe that Andy really knows who Dr. Abbott is just by sight. Andy, of course, is doing a lot of work on the outside of his new practice. Painting the green window panes just outside. It's, just, it's looking really, really nice. Sadly, though, Harold's got an issue with Dr. Brown. Parked in a spot right in front of his practice. He's not a happy camper. What was he intending to do with that golf club? Like, yank Andy down off the ladder he's standing on? I don't like that. <coughs> well, Harold basically says, yeah, that's your foreign-made car over there. You SUV over there. You parking in my spot again? I'm gonna have it towed. And, I, I mean, I get it. Andy's like, I'm sorry. I mean, I didn't see a name on the curb. And he is new there, so how is he supposed to know that? That he that Dr. Abbott parks right there in front of his, his office. Which, it's wintertime. You're gonna want to park as close to your... The place you're going to as humanly possible. So, Harold is like, it's implied. It's in front of my office. This is where it finally clicks for Andy. Like, oh, yeah, you're the other doctor. How do you do? I'm Andy Brown. And Harold just takes an immediate dislike to Andy's chipperness. And the whole, you know, he puts his hand out to shake Harold's hand, which he doesn't shake. He's like, yeah, and if by other doctor you meant Everwood's primary care physician... Then yes, that's me. Harold is so formal. I don't know why, but this time around watching this, I got a semi-slight attraction to Harold. I don't know, maybe it's the gray hair. It uh, did turn on for some reason, but uh, I don't know, I guess I need my old man crush, right? I mean, like six, seven years ago, it was Christoph Waltz. Now it's, I don't know. Maybe it's going to be the guy who plays Harold. <laughs> I have no clue. So apparently they're going to bond over a little bit of golfing. 
and everyone's got an indoor range because it's like it's currently snowing there so <laughs> there's not going to be much place to play golf unless it's indoors and it's a very expensive i guess titleist so i looked it up i mean ones that vaguely look like the one that harold is holding and it says online it's like 500 dollars Wow, this <laughs> really dates it. As Andy has to look at the club, Harold's like, well, be careful. That club was used by none other than Tiger Woods himself. Oh, oh. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, Tiger Woods, he's still playing the golf, right? I'm pretty sure. I don't watch golf. I'm not really into it. But this is 2002, long before that whole scandal had happened. Which, when did that happen? The whole Tiger Woods deal. That was... Like, 2010, 11, 9? I can't remember. In the 99 British Open is when he used that club. Good. Oh, yes. Oh, of course. Yes. He purchased it on eBay. Good for you. <laughs> and, of course, Andy's like, no kidding. I'll have to tell him. Oh, they're trading Tiger Woods stories. Like, oh, you got a club on eBay used by Tiger Woods, right? Well, I actually met the guy. Like, they're, like, Andy's not intentionally trying to one-up Harold, but Harold is trying to, like, mark his territory. And Harold is just kind of baffled, like, you know Tiger Woods? And Andy's like, well, I operated on his uncle. He's a sweet kid, sweet kid. And Andy apologizes, like, about the whole office thing. I'm not here to step on your turf. And Harold's like, really? Your turf? Uh-huh, that's rich. Look, nobody told you, did they? And Andy is just like, what? And Harold's like, well, I wouldn't waste your time turning this place into a doctor's office. No one will use it. Because, of course, Harold's been there for years and years and years, took over for his dad, and just, they have a long-standing history in that town with the doctors. So, he's been the doctor in that community for over 15, oh, you know, because, okay, Harold's been there for 15, you know, operating for 15 years. Amy's right around Ephraim's age, right? We haven't met him yet. He's maybe a year or two older than her. So, he started, to, he took over for his father's practice for 15 years and which is funny because Andy's been a doctor for over 15 years since Ephraim was a baby so that's it's just it's interesting you know going back and watching these years now it's just and as an adult versus when I was 20 when this show came out and I'm now 37 so, it's just interesting to see all these little bits. And that's what I'm excited about going back and watching the show and getting all these little bits and stuff that I didn't, I either overlooked, didn't care, or just now noticing seeing it in a new light. <laughs> Andy is just like, he's just, he's got this big grin. He's just so elated to be in Everwood. He's like living off this. This this emotional high of just being in a new place, a fresh start, and just possibilities. And he's eager to make friends. Granted, when you want to make friends with someone who's not really keen to, like, be chummy with you, that kind of... Yeah. <laughs> well, I will like it later on. I think in season three when they eventually join... They, uh... 
they started together, basically Harold ends up joining Andy, which I'll get to that when I cover season two, and you'll learn about why they ended up having to combine into one practice. Harold just called... <laughs> Andy a nutbag! So Amy takes Ephraim to this really cool spot where you can just kind of see... It's almost like an overlook hill where you can just look down on the town below and everything. It's just really cool. Granted, Amy's lived in this weather. She's acclimated to it. She knows how to dress appropriately where... Ephraim, on the other hand, he might have a light winter jacket, but he's still, I mean, New York gets cold in wintertime too, I presume, but Colorado may be an entirely different type of cold. Talking Alaska and the Arctic Circle, but... He's not even wearing a winter jacket. He's wearing a light fall jacket that you would probably wear if it were maybe 55 degrees out. It looks like it could even be maybe 25 degrees out. Maybe even less than that. You are not equipped, buddy. You gotta get a winter coat. So, Amy's kind of pointing out as... Ephraim's trying to blow some warm air into his frozen fingers. She's pointing out the grade school and Main Street and all the places that she, you know, she's grown up in this town and everything there just is basically connected to Main Street. So there are factories in Everwood. There's also a church row which has every denomination of church. Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Catholic, Lutheran, and Baptist. And, of course, Ephraim, this is the first mention we get of the fact that his mother was Jewish. We learned that fact, because he asked, where's the synagogue? And Amy's like, well, are you Jewish? And he's like, well, yeah, half. I mean, my mother was Jewish. This is probably the first time he's even mentioned his mom to anyone else, because he's like, my mom is... And then, of course, he stops there as he corrects himself as it was. And Amy apologizes. He's like, well, what are you apologizing for? She's like, well, I didn't mean for the topic to come up. And everyone's like, this is no biggie. It's fine. Amy's cute, you know, so he can forgive her for that. She is wearing a sweater under that, which is definitely what you want to wear. Sweater under a heavy jacket. I hope she's wearing gloves because he is not. Oh, he's like, well, it's pretty inevitable talking about my mom. I mean, she did give birth to me and everything. So he kind of nods his head over, like, can we, like, sit down here at this bench so I can get some feeling back into my body and my fingers? So Amy's like, so did your dad really work on a king? He's like, well, I mean, he was just a prince at the time, but yeah, sure. Amy's probably just going based on what she read from that Time article. So Amy's just enamored with Ephraim and just, I mean, because he's, like, a new person and someone who's not born in Everwood, someone from the outside. And she's like, what's it like having a dad who's famous? And Ephraim kind of goes on about his dad and just all the ways that his dad has disappointed him by missing birthdays, piano recitals. But it's okay because he's restoring the vision of a six-year-old boy. Because Ephraim feels, well, I can't get mad at him because he did, like, restore the vision of a little boy. Eight years old, his dad missed his birthday party, and Ephraim, of course, wants to cry about it. But he's on TV that night for separating the heads of Siamese twins. And 
two years later, another example, he's done. He's not there. Dad's not there to see me in the school play. He is, however, in the New York Times for restoring the vision of a five-year-old kid. And he's like, well, that prince that you mentioned, think of that as my dad's excuse for missing my elementary school graduation. So Ephraim definitely harbors a lot of anger and resentment for his father. The fact that his father wasn't there for some of the moments of his life. And the fact that now his father, when he's 15, wants to try to have a relationship with his son. And Ephraim's basically like, it's too late now for that. <laughs> and he explains to Amy, it's like, you want to be mad at him, you want to hate him, but you can't because he's saving lives. And granted, if you think about it, Amy doesn't understand this because even though I'm sure she doesn't think that her father hangs, hangs the moon, you know, but she, she thinks he's a great guy but kind of corny, but he's never disappointed her in the way that Ephraim feels his father's disappointed him by missing big, important moments in his life when he wished his dad could have been there to celebrate with him. Ephraim finally asks the million-dollar question that we're probably all wanting to know at this point. As he asks, Amy, why are you talking to me? Mostly girls that I know in New York walked on the other side of the hall to avoid me. He says, girls like you don't breathe around guys like me without having some secret agenda. Well, he hit that nail on the head, let me tell you that much. This kid, aside from being able to uh, stand up to some bullies and stuff like that with sarcastic comments, he also is pretty wise to only pretty girls talk to guys like me when they want something. He looks at her and it's like, well, she's like, mine's world domination. Like, ugh. And he's like, well, seriously, I mean, you seem like you have enough friends. What's up? You know, why are you going out of your way to make me feel welcome? No one else did. And she's like, well, you got kind of a tragic, lonely thing going on. I kind of dig that. Like, I don't think that's it. Try again. Amy has got this ange angelic, like, heart-shaped face. Ephraim just kind of looks at her. He's just almost kind of scrutinizing her a little bit. Like, he can't figure her out. And he asks, you don't have to listen to Al Green, do you? And of course she's like, who's Al Green? Like, uh-huh, yeah. All right, as Amy and Ephraim are walking back from checking out the view of the town, we meet Amy's older brother, Bright Abbott. This guy, you know him as Chris Pratt, Parks and Rec. I only watched a couple episodes. What I watch is funny. He got his start on this show. And think about it. Amy Van Camp also got her start on this show. Out of all the people on this show, those two, especially Chris Pratt right now, is so big. After this show, um, Emily Van Camp was also on the show Revenge. I've never seen it. She was also, whether she might still be on that show, I think it's called Residence. I've never seen it, though, but this girl shines in whatever she's in, and the same with Chris Pratt. I mean, he might be over 200-plus pounds, really. I'm not going to say he's unrecognizable from what he is now, but he really... Night and day difference between this in 2002, and then you got your Jurassic World in 2000, what was it, like, 
1617, something like that. So they break apart as Ephraim's like, well, I should probably get to kill. Hey, there's a person of color right there walking past. Amy heads over to her brother, who looks at her and says, you know, dad is going to skin your ass for hanging out with that kid. And Amy calls his bluff, like, well, you're not going to tell him. And he's like, oh, really? She's like, yeah, you want to know why? She says, well, dad's not finding out anything because you're not telling him. And the look that he gives is, ooh, you're right. And he's like, oh, aren't I? And she's like, no, not if you value that collection of porn stash down on our computer. What was the name of it again? The file? Oh, yeah, favorite biblical passages. Uh-huh. Yeah, she's got you over a barrel, guy. Ah, uh, back in the days when teenagers would surf for porn on the internet and then save it to their computer. That is the stupidest thing. Now we see Andy hanging a sign that says Dr. Brown Family Practice. Of course, Delia's there to help service and observe as she's like, it's crooked. He's like, well, yeah, sure. I mean, if you look at it straight on, but if you lean a little bit, it's perfect. See? Oh, here we go. We get to meet Edna Harper. As I said, she is Harold Abbott's mother. And she, of course, wants to meet the new doctor. This lady is cool as they come. She's got a motorcycle. She's got a leather jacket. She is not a granny type. She is... She's snarky. She's just so cool. And she is grandmother to Bright and Amy Abbott, mother-in-law to Rose, wife to Irv Harper. But, uh, yeah, she's... She's pretty awesome. So she introduces <laughs> herself as Edna Harper, and she looks at Andy and says, you're scrawnier than your picture. She calls him Sparky. And she looks at Delia and says, who's the private first class? Like PFC. I heard that term PFC on um, American Dreams, which I do plan to still do episodes of that show. Maybe sometime every once in a while, maybe starting next year. Delia's like, I'm Delia. And Edna eyes Andy like, alright, word on the front is you're turning this into a doctor's office. And of course she wants to inquire about being employed by him. He's got 40 years of nursing experience. Sweet. You're hired. You're hired. I don't even have to conduct the interview. You're just, you're hired. Two tours of Vietnam. Army Nurse Corps, thrice decorated. She's got to resume her resume, and you'll find it to your satisfaction, Dr. Brown. And he asks, you worked for Dr. Abbott? And she says, senior and junior. So she worked for her husband, now she's working for her son. Now she kind of wants to get, get out from I think she seriously, she wants to stick it to Harold by working for the competition. <laughs> Does she and Harold really do not have the best mother-son relationship at all. Andy, of course, kind of asks, like, why'd you leave? And she's like, an unfortunate incident, the details I'd rather not divulge. On account of their of a personal nature. Says, I can assure you, however, the parting was mutual. He tells her, hey, look, I'll look at this later. I'll get back to you later in the week. And she's like, all right, sounds good to me. See you, doc. She looks at Delia before she leaves, says, ideals, private. She's all about the, the, the military terms and the military talk. I like it. She's a tough old bird. And Andy just kind of looks down at Delia like, I like her. You like her? Yeah, I like her. She's going to work out just fine. 
And this lady, I mean, she's driving a motorcycle, and she's got a helmet and a leather jacket, but she's driving it in the winter. Usually people probably pack their bikes up, like, in what, November by the latest? Depending on where you live. It's been a snowy state. I don't know. What's the cutoff time for uh, taking out the motorcycle? So Ephraim and Andy are kind of putting away some dishes. We do hear a little tinkle-tinkling of little dabble-do-ya of the piano, which, if you think about it, they mentioned Ephraim had a recital. I can't remember. Did they say it was a piano recital? Because I never saw a piano in that apartment. Ephraim's frustrated. He really hasn't even touched the piano since his mother's death, and I can understand it probably brings up too much emotionally that he just kind of wanna wants to walk away. And he's, he's finally, he puts down the plate, and he's like, okay, I've had it with... The little uh, tinkering of the keys. He's like, hey, stop it. And she's like, well, it just sits here. And she's like, no one touches it. And he's like, no, stop, as he pulls her away. And Delia shouts for her dad. So Andy comes in and breaks up this fight before it really gets going. He's like, all right, that's enough. Delia, you can go off to bed, brush your teeth, I'll read you. And he kind of starts in on Ephraim with... Why haven't you played? It's been a while since your mother passed. He's like, well, you gotta play sometime. And Ephraim's like, you're right. And Andy's surprised that, like, I am. And Ephraim is just deadpan. Yes, father. For it is only through the gift of music that I can heal the pain. It grows deep within me. And Ephraim just kind of scoffs and shakes his head like, like, you care if I ever played it again or not. And he's probably like, yeah, you weren't even there for my recital, so why do you care? I bet anything, he probably even blames Andy for not showing up. That if maybe he had been there with his mother, that she never would have gotten into an accident. So, this is the first appearance of Ghost Julia Brown. As Andy is just washing his face and just trying to, like... So, I'm guessing that what Andy and his wife were kind of discussing is a patient that died on his watch, um, a lady whose husband had to end up, you know, when the wife passed, that he had a bunch of kids to raise. Like, guess how many kids he had to raise? And she's like, three. He's like, six. And Andy turns to his ghost wife and says, and for a single dad, that's six two kids. Six kids too many. And he's just talking to her like it's no big deal. And she suggests that he grow a beard. And he's like, you've been saying that for years. I'm like, well, it is cold out. Maybe the beard will help keep your face warm in the winter. And plus it's like in Colorado. So, I mean, and you're in the mountains. Mountain man, grow the beard. And she says, you know, I think you'd look distinguished with a beard. And Andy just says, yeah, I think I'd look like my Uncle Norman, who probably, who knows? We don't know what he looks like. He could have looked hideous with the beard. Some people can pull off the beard. Maybe some can. Just depends on the person, but depends on the face. Some people got a face for a beard. Others probably don't. Okay, now I'm kind of wondering, is this a flashback? Or is this just him seeing... I'm really wondering now, if, because I know that he's having instances where he's seen his dead wife, he's talking to her like she's still there, and even Ephraim and, and Delia notice, but Ephraim is the one that calls him out on it. 
and she makes a joke about how his uncle Norman looks distinguished with the beard. He's like, what, you got a thing for my uncle? And she's like, well, just think about it. And he's like, yeah, you and my uncle Norman, gross. She's like, no, what would you do if you were left alone? And he's like, that's morbid. This looks like it could be a flashback. Because she's talking about something that hasn't happened yet. And she says it's important that we talk about it. This does look like it was a flashback in New York. That she wanted to have a conversation with him about something that all couples probably should have that conversation at one point in their marriage. But what you would do if your spouse was no longer with you if they had passed unexpectedly. Especially when it comes to if you have children involved. Apparently he's had a 16 hour day and he's just not into having one of those spousal tragedy, hypothetical tragedies conversations with his wife. Oh, he's like, why don't you ask me if I could never, about what I do if I could never see a Yankees game or a, have another slice of raised pizza or something like that. Not, don't, don't ask me what I'd do if you weren't here. But then again, he's got the beard. So this clearly is not a flashback because we see him standing there dancing by himself. Delia sees him just dancing. Because you think he's dancing with her like it's a memory. No, he's dancing by himself. So Delia kind of sees her father. I wouldn't call it unhinged, but it's not normal for in her eyes. Like, this is a side of her dad she's never seen. But then again, as I say, everyone deals with grief and losing somebody in their own way. But for nine-year-old Delia, this is just very confusing. She's still waiting for that story there, Andy. So at least Andy doesn't park in Harold's spot. He parks in front of the flower mart. And they're both walking across the street. And Andy even points out, like, uh, your office is, like, back there. And Harold just wants to get a cup of coffee. Andy looks at him. Harold and is like, you know, you remind me of somebody. And Harold is like, yeah, perhaps I remind you of one of the inmates you knew at whatever asylum you escaped from. So this is Andy's first day as a doctor in Everwood. And Andy is just oblivious to it all. He's like, hey, are you going to wish me good luck? And Harold's like, well, it'll take more than luck for the SS wacko, but uh, what the heck, good luck. Harold's humor is just such a dry wit. So, so dry. Not corny dry, but dry. There's a video store there that says Video Plus across the street, and it's got a Coke machine out front. Coca-Cola! I mean, I'll drink, like I said, I'll drink Diet Pepsi, but I am pure all the way Diet Coke. All right, looks like we are back in school with Ephraim as he gets a note in his locker that he presumes he reads it's for Mamie, that she wants to see him. Actually looks both ways to think almost like, hey, maybe I can find out who dropped this here in my little uh, locker vent. He opens it and here's what it says. Meet me after class by the ski trail, Amy. That is the most perfect generic looking cursive I've ever seen in my life. I don't write in cursive unless I'm like scribbling my name as a signature, but even then it's just unless I have to write it neatly on a piece of paper, 
And Ephraim actually believes it's from her. We're gonna find out, spoiler alert, it's not from her. It's from someone else. He keeps looking at it like, oh my god, yes! He likes me! He was smitten with her from the moment she said, hey. Alright, the realtor's got a giant ficus plant. But apparently she did not expect Edna Harper to be there. Like, Edna Harper, what are you doing here? This uh, Mrs. Baxworth says. And she's like, well, let me see. I'm in a doctor's office. Because she is the new receptionist nurse for Andy Brown. Of course, Mrs. Baxworth is all the misgossip around town. Like, does Mr. Dr. Abbott know that you're working here? She's like, nope. And he will now. This place has transformed, like, literally over the last, like, couple or few days. It is gorgeous. I love it. And you can't really see too, too much of it just because of the low lighting. Maybe they need to get a few more lights in there. Or maybe, I don't know, it just, it looks beautiful, even in this low lighting. So, while she's kind of gabbing on, Andy says, Miss Baxworth, is there something wrong with your neck? And she's like, oh, well, it's just a little bit of, little stiffness. And he's like, well, would you like me to look at for, it for you? Like, basically, you could be his first patient. And she's like, well, I would, but I already made an appointment with Dr. Abbott. And, of course, he's like, well, I put off to tomorrow what you can diagnose today. She's like, well, I mean, I shouldn't. It's not that I don't trust you. That is never a way to start a conversation. It's not that I don't trust you. And he's like, well, my loss. But he flatters her with, like, it'd be like examining Miss Taylor all over again. And she stops, like, blather, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, oh, Taylor? And he kind of gives some uh, medical garb here. He's like, see how your clavicle rises up here? He explains the lateral end is flat, but yours has a perfect S shape. And he's like, the only other time I've seen that was on Elizabeth Taylor. Like, oh, the flattery. The flattery. And she is bought and sold with Liz Taylor. Like, you operated on Liz Taylor? And Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods' uncle. So, yeah, she's like, well, maybe you should take a look at my neck. I would, I wish she could take a look at my neck. Because it's still stupid. Stiff after I, I actually got a massage today, and um, she's kind of explaining to me because I said I got a memory foam pillow, but it's not really helping me. Granted, I sleep on my side. She's like, You might want to try sleeping on your back because that way the memory foam pillow will more conform to your head. If, if you're not, don't sleep on the edge of the pillow, sleep like right in the middle so it conforms to your head. So we'll see, we'll see. And he leads her into his, uh, um, his examination room. And I love Edna just kind of shaking her head and smiling like, oh, that Doc Brown, what a charmer. You know his bedside manner is going to be a lot more, um, charming than, say, old dry wit Abbott, Dr. Abbott. <laughs> Aww! Irv Harper is so good with the kids. He's hanging out with them. He's helping them off the slide. Granted, it's a hard plastic slide. It's not like the metal slides that I grew up with. There is actually an episode of Rescue 911. If you put in um, Rescue 911 uh, metal slide or something like that, there's an episode on there where kids were, like, throwing snow. Because it was one of those twisty metal slides. And kids were, like, throwing snow up. The slide kind of like when kids go down and like make them go faster. You know how kids like, I don't know if, um, 
if kids' coats have these nowadays or if they just did away with them. But you know on the hood how you have the little, um, the pull strings to, like, make the hood, like, tighter around your head? Well, one kid went down it, and the little pull string, the little plastic thing, got wedged in between this spot on on the slide, like, just before you hit that curb. And immediately it started choking that boy, and they had to, like, try to get it off of him. But the thing is, you can try to go up that slide, but that snow there, it's just making it really, really slick. And that kid was trying to climb back up the slide, but it's that snow, it's, he just kept sliding down. And finally, the kids alerted, like, a teacher, a playground teacher, like, there's something wrong, he's not going down. And they had to, I think they even had to get, like, a knife, or they had to get something to, oh no, they were able to somehow, like, lift him up just enough to be able to get the thing loose. Or they were able to cut it, but either way. And it's like, he wasn't breathing, like, his face was completely, like red and blotchy and they were able to do mouth to mouth and get him back to breathing but it's a it's a good episode it makes me cry the one that really makes me cry is the little boy who gets caught at the bottom of the escalator and just the the cries of that little boy just break my heart but Delia here she's not really We've seen Ephraim have a little bit of a time, but Amy immediately latched onto him because she has a um a reason for latching onto him that we'll learn later. Delia, on the other hand, is just kind of hanging out on this picnic table that's right by this the double sided slide, and she hasn't really made many friends. You know, it's kind of new. It's a little hard for her. The kids are probably like, "You're new. We." all known each other since preschool we're not really and probably the fact that this whole town has rallied against this 15 year stint doctor dr abbott and everything and they're probably like your dad's new he's a new doctor he's gonna you know kids pick up that stuff from their parents so <laughs> but luckily mr herb is there to kind of give her a little bit of advice so we learned that Delia is in third grade and he looks at her and says, it's not often I find a third grader lost in profound thought on their lunch hour. And she's like, Mr. Irv, I don't feel good. And he's like, oh, well, why is that? As he sits down on the other side of the, um, the bench. She's like, can you keep a secret? And he's like, yeah, I can do that. And she kind of opens up to Mr. Irv and says, I think my dad's sick. And she says, he talks to himself like my mom, like, he talks to himself to my mom like she's still here. And she says, only that's a problem because she died like eight months ago. And I like how straightforward he is. He's like, I'm not going to lie to you, Delia. It sounds like your dad's got a case of something. She's like, I knew it. And he's like, well, but what he has, it's the one sickness most people spend their whole life trying to catch. He's like, what does he have? And Mr. Irv says, a distraught heart. She says, well, he tells her it's not like any other disease. It can't kill you. And as a nine-year-old, I think she kind of understands. I mean, when she said my dad's sick, she knew right away it's not like a sick, like physical sick. It's like a mental sick, a heart in a way. And he's like, in most cases... It makes a person feel alive for the first time. 
And he says, you know, the only problem is there's no remedy for it anywhere in the world. So we cut back to Dr. Brown's office. He tells her that, he tells Mrs. Baxworth, torticollis brought on, I guess, by possibly a new bed. I'm going to look that up. Maybe that's what I have. I'm not diagnosing myself based on this episode and based on what he just told her, but I might, I want to see. So I looked it up and it says torticollis and it says possible like wry neck. A type of movement disorder in which the muscles controlling the neck cause sustained twisting or jerking. Condition in which the head becomes persistently turned to one side, often associated with painful muscle spasms, also called wry neck. Now, I don't really think that's what I have, because I don't think, it's just, when I turn it a little to the left, or to the neck, to the left a little bit, but I kind of even do feel it kind of in the back of my neck. And when I got that massage today, it was, the, the masseuse kind of said, it's like, I definitely, there was a lot, a lot of tightness in my neck the last time. And that was over a month ago that she did that. And she says it's not as bad as it was when she first saw me, but it's still there. So I'm really wondering if the next step would be maybe me getting an uh, an x-ray. I'm going to try what she told me with the, 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 memory foam pillow kind of sleeping like on my back and kind of see how long that lasts and see if that even has any improvement. And Mrs. Baxworth is like, wow, she's floored. Like, I just bought a new California King. So a California King that's like bigger than an actual King size, right? That's like big, huge, I, I guess. Oh, he prescribed her a muscle relaxant. Well, I had something like that, but I only took it for a couple days because it felt like I kind of was sluggish during the day. So I kind of stopped taking it, but I could probably try to take it again and see if that really... The only thing was, it's like, I took my sleep aid. Well, not with this, but um, he, I was told, like, don't take your sleep aid if you're taking this because it's going to knock you out. It didn't so much knock me out as it made me yawn a little bit and get a little sleepy. But the thing is, I kept waking up constantly through the night, which my trazodone really helps me to not do that. So that's, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Getting a little uh, personal here with my neck issues, but <laughs> if you guys got any suggestions, I mean, please. <laughs> a neck brace. Okay, he's going to have Edna get her a neck brace. So, of course, Mrs. Baxworth didn't bring her purse, but she's like, I'll get a check you later. And he says, I'm not charging you. She's like, well, fine, of course, for the neck brace, I don't have a problem with that. But for the visit, I have my... And he tells her he's not charging anybody for anything, which that sounds semi-off the rails a little bit. But then again, Andy is probably so financially set that he could afford to do this. This, of course, is going to make people kind of scratch their heads. Like, a doctor who doesn't charge for visits? Really? And, and Mrs. Baxworth, even Edna's kind of looking at him like, are you serious? And he's like, yes. As in, no cash, no checks, no credit cards. And Mrs. Baxworth is asking the question, we're probably early morning, like, what are you going to do for income? He's like, I was a brain surgeon for 15 years. Like, I'll be fine. My kids will want for nothing. He's like, I have a few penny pennies tucked away. And of course, after she leaves, Edna's like, you know, by telling her, 
you basically told the whole town. And I think that's what Andy was going for. Like, yeah, the town gossip, of course. Like, you want to see if you can get some people in here? Tell them they don't got to pay nothing for services. It's absolutely 100% free. All right, now we come back to Ephraim, who is going to meet, quote-unquote, Amy at the ski trail. Mind you, Ephraim did not meet Bright. He just said, I'll see, I gotta get to class, Amy, and just vamoosed. He's gone. Went to class. Right away, Bright hones in on Ephraim. Like, oh, you're looking for Amy? Granted, of course, Bright had to bring his back up. If you're such a tough guy, you don't need backup. And he tells Ephraim she's not coming. I get it. He's being the big brother. He's protecting his sister. And Ephraim's like, uh, and you are? Bright's like, her brother. I left you that note. He's got two cronies with him, Bright does. And Bright tells him, well, I wanted to talk to you. And even Ephraim was like, well, you could have talked to me. You didn't have to go to all the trouble of writing such girly handwriting. He's like, you didn't have to go to the trouble of imitating feminine cursive. And he's like, that's my real handwriting. Really? That's the neatest handwriting I've seen in my life. So, Bright pretty much threatens Ephraim, say, stay away from Amy. She's got a boyfriend. She tell you that? Like, well, we definitely did not know. This is news to all of us, including Ephraim. And Ephraim's like, no, but she didn't talk about you either, so we only covered the important stuff. He's like, Ephraim's not backing down. It's like, dude, you can come at me all you want with your tough guy bravado, but I ain't scared of you. So Bright's gonna go for Ephraim's bag and just start rifling through it. Like, hey, nice bag, let's see what you got in here. And he just dumps all of Ephraim's stuff on the ground. And one of Bright's cronies picks it up like, Edo, this stuff's expensive. And Bright's like, hey, why don't we double its value? And he rips it right down the spine in half. Luckily, Amy gets in there. I don't know how she figured out where they were, but she goes in there and really jumps in Bright's face. Granted, the book's been ripped in half. And this whole time, Ephraim had no idea what this guy's name was. And Ephraim's like, Bright, really? That's his name? Ironic. So Bright pretty much throws Amy under the bus. Like, go ahead, Amy. Why don't you tell him why you're really hanging out with him? And Ephraim just looks at her with such, like, <laughs> yeah, figured. Because she's like, Ephraim, I can explain. And he's like, you know what? Forget it. Like, forget it. There's nothing to say. Don't worry, Bright. I'll stay away from your sister. So, what the heck? Ephraim starts to walk away, and Bright goes, this is a low blow. He's like, hey, has he always been a head case, or just since your mom bought it, as in since your mom died? I'm like, oh, you did not just talk bad about his dead mom. And Ephraim's like, you are not going to be standing for much longer. He pile drives into Bright, knocking him off his feet. And Amy, of course, slams her fist right into Bright's eye. Isn't like, Bright, get off of him. Just go, boom, right in his eye. Like, good. Both Bright and Ephraim wind up at, <laughs> in the principal's office with black eyes. He's hanging out there with them, probably waiting for, you know, her and Bright's dad to get there. As Andy comes in and is like, Ephraim, what's going on? And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. Surprise, surprise. Who comes out of the principal?
principal's office. It's Harold. He's like, oh, you? This is your kid? Great. Right away, it's like, dude, you don't even know the whole story. It's like, well, I should have known it was one of your offspring that did this to my son. Like, <laughs> everyone's kind of staring back and forth between Harold and his dad. Like, you two know each other? And Bright turns to Ephraim like, oh, my sister forgot to tell you? My dad's a real doctor in this town. So Harold's like, all right, come on, let's go, kids. So I'm going to play this clip here. This clip is definitely what sold the show for a lot of people. This big fight scene, you know it's been culminating, that has been brewing for a very long time, that these two are eventually going to, it's going to come to blows. They're going to get angry. They're going to have it out, finally, because enough's enough. Andy can't take Ephraim's sullen, uh, sullen disobedient behavior. The fact that he won't talk to him. And Ephraim's just throwing it in his face. Well, like, yeah, I got this black eye because of you, dick. And Ephraim, and, and Andy's like, hey, you talk to me like that again, you're going to get another one. <laughs> so? What do you got to say for yourself? You know, Ephraim, I thought you'd change. I thought if we moved here... You'd stop with the fighting, with the acting out. Yeah, I got this black eye because of you. Dick. You talk to me like that, you're going to get yourself another one. Yeah, you said you were crazy. And you know what? Newsflash, you are. All right, you quit your job. You grow this ugly-ass beard. You look like you wear your clothes to bed, and you move us to the middle of Nowheresville, USA. And why? For what reason? Because somebody told you it was pretty <laughs> once? And if that's not enough, you talk to mom like she's still here? Yeah, I've seen you. And Julia, too, so what do I have to say for myself? What do you have to say for yourself? I can't believe you think my beard is ugly. Mom would never have done this to us. You never would have moved us here or gone crazy. Don't be so sure of that. I am sure. All right, I knew her. You didn't know her. You were never around. We all just tolerated Hey, that's pretty good. What else you got? I wish you died instead of her. Well, I wish I did too, you little fat bat. I hate you. I hate you right back. Now get in that house. Good for Ryan. Oh, yeah? Yeah. At some point, you're getting in that house. So right before the shouting match, Andy wants to know what's going on with Ephraim. And the fact that he says, I really thought this move would have been good for you. You would have stopped with the fighting in school and the acting out. And it's like, Andy, do you really think a move was going to stop his sullen, angry behavior? You can't just assume that a move is going to fix a person's personality. Like a, a change of... Scenery is going to fix someone and make them come out of their shell or whatever. Like, you might be great with patience, but when it comes to your own family, you really don't know your son. Ephraim's got a chip on his shoulder since he has probably had since his eighth birthday party. And it has stayed there and hardened for the last umpteen years. For the last seven years. Basically, in a way, if you think about it, he's like, I got this black guy because of you. Because Ephraim was defending his dad to Bright. And he was defending his dead mother. It's like, you don't talk bad about someone's dead parent. You just, you don't, that is a line you do not cross. I don't care who you are or where you're from. You don't do that. It's like, yeah, he said you were crazy. And you, you definitely are, Dad. Because... You talk to mom like she's still here. You grow this ugly ass beard. You move us to the middle of nowhere, nowhere USA. Yeah. And he's like, I've seen you. Delia's seen you. We've seen you talk to mom. 
whole, the only thing that Andy gets out of this is, I can't believe you think my beard is ugly. And he's kind of like, why did you move us here? Because somebody told you it was pretty ones? Really? Ephraim asks, like, he knows his mom so well, apparently. Like, mom never would have done this. She never would have moved us here. And Andy's like, don't be so sure about that. And Ephraim comes back with, you didn't know her, okay? I knew her. And we all t just tolerated you. It's like, buddy, your dad and your mom had a life before you ever came along. So don't sit there and tell him or stand there and shout at him that he didn't know his own wife. And if you think about it, there are things that parents don't share with their kids. And there's a reason why they don't, because they're not friends with their children. They're not meant to be friends. They're meant to be a parent to their children. They're not going to share intimate details of their life their problems with their, with their husband, with their kid. And of course, Ephraim shouts, I wish you had died instead of her. And Andy shouts right back in his face, I wish I had too, you little bastard. So Andy tells Ephraim to get in the house. Ephraim grabs his bike after Andy pulls it out of the car and says, I'm going for a ride, and just takes off on his bike. Andy shouts at him, sooner or later, getting in that house. And of course, who happens to be outside but next door neighbor, Nina. I love how she's just framed in the doorway and does a little, like, I've been here the whole time, I saw the whole thing kind of way. And she is actually pregnant, which is going to be a, um, a mini arc that's going to carry through for, like, maybe a couple episodes, maybe a few episodes. And that's going to have its own little mini storyline. Like, I run a tight ship. And she's like, yeah, I noticed you want a cup of coffee. <laughs> like, yeah, you need to calm down for a bit, Andy, and just get your thoughts settled. Oh, he says only if it's spiked. We only see a little bit of her house right now, but it's so pretty. I like how the sunlight kind of floats in through the window and just hits that, e like, it's kind of a light yellow beigey brown a tawny color even maybe and Andy apologizes you know for creating that you know having that fight with the sun out there like I didn't mean to cause you know a disturbance those cups are pretty cute and those are the biggest cookies I've ever seen those are huge oh yeah the awful display of parenting techniques like I'm sorry you had to witness that I like how he also says to Nina I'm been recently becoming familiar with him because you know after 15 years of working as a doctor and everything he really realizes he sees his kids on occasion but he doesn't really he hasn't spent time with them to really get to know them on a level of understanding them and nina says the only thing harder than being a parent is being a single one so Nina mentions about being uh, married, happily married, to a funny, caring, sweetheart of a man whose only flaw is he travels eight months of the year selling computer software. But she has to deal with a husband who travels all the time. So Sam wants to zip outside, of course, without a coat on. And Nina's like, whoa, buddy, as she grabs him by the back of the collar, where do you think you're going? And Sam doesn't even answer. He's just <coughs> like a really, like, thick harsh cough and Andy kind of comments like that's a pretty nasty cough and Nina's like well he's had it for like a month and Dr. Abbott of course thought it was a chest cold but the medicine that was prescribed to Sam is just isn't having an effect on it and Andy's like he's not getting better and Nina's like well no he's not but he's not getting worse either so Sam wants to go outside because he's got a little bag and he's like oh what's in your bag guy 
And he's like, Sam's like, it's a shovel. He's like, oh, okay, okay. And he looks, he sees Sam's fingertips are just really, like, kind of chapped and red from the cold. It's like, are you not having him put a coat on Nina when he goes out there with some gloves? That's probably attributing to making this cup or I don't know. And that little horticultural greenhouse setup, of course, with the plants is actually Sam's thing. And Andy kind of tells Nina about how he saw his wife, Julia, as the perfect parent. Like, and that's not just uh, the revisionist history either. She really was. And he's just saying how his wife really knew the kids. Like, she knew what to say. She knew what to do. She really was good with Ephraim and stuff and his sullen moods. And it's just, I... I don't know what I'm doing here. I really don't. I don't know how to reach my son. I don't. You know, he's doing the best with with Delia. Doesn't really seem to have too many ish things, but Ephraim is really a handful. He's really taken this really, really hard. He's like, she knew when to talk to them, when to ignore them. I guess it all comes with you know, really you know, knowing your kids and not only just seeing them like for a few hours during when you get a chance to see them. So Andy starts talking some medical jargon about uh, the form in mag magnum. It's the hole at the base of the skull. And he says how most doctors need a device to find it. Eventually I think he's going to work in something and how this relates to his kids or his wife. Oh, he says he never did. And I, oh, I think what he's trying to get at is the fact that he is an amazing do brain surgeon, amazing doctor. Knows patients inside and out, but when it comes to his kids, that's, he really, it's almost like he needs a, a parenting manual. He says, you know, he could always locate that hole at the base of the skull with his hands, and how surgery just became instinct, instinctively to him. He says how Julia was the same way when it came to parenting the kids. And Nina's a sharp cookie! And she's like, well, it has to do with her, right, why you came to Everwood. <laughs> and Andy says, do you believe that people live on after they die? That their souls are with us? You know, he's asking these questions, spiritual questions, to, to Nina. At least he feels in a way that maybe though he doesn't know Nina as well, but she just seems so open and honest that she's not going to laugh him out of her house just by him asking those questions. And who honestly has he re really met so far where we get some skeptical people just kind of asking the question, like, why are you here? You know, he wouldn't ask this question to Mrs. Baxworth. He definitely wouldn't to um, Harold because Harold wants something to do with him since he's a competition. Edna, I think she would definitely give a straightforward answer. Nina's a simple. She just says, yeah, I do. And... Andy feels like he has to prove this to his wife, that he can be the kind of doctor, the kind of father, in a way that he was the kind of doctor, that he can also be the kind of father that she had wanted him to be when she was alive. Like, the way that he is an amazing doctor, if he could put that, the same amount of effort and energy and focus into being a parent, and the way that he knows his patients inside and out, Basically, if he can apply that to his kids. I think with time that he, he can. It's going to be a learning process. It's going to be hard for both, all three of them. But either way, they're going to make it through it. They're going to work through their issues. And they're going to move forward. And they're going to find things about Everwood. They're going to find their niche. They're going to find their places of where they fit into this small town. 
what Nina says here. To love someone so much, you're still proving it to them after they die. He says, well, if that's crazy, Andy, I hope my own insanity isn't far away. I love That's beautiful. I love how she put that just before. Like, even after your spouse is gone, you're still hoping you can prove to them that you are trying the best that you can. Like, you know, it's almost like he's saying, I gotta make it up to my wife. I gotta be there for my kids in a way that I wasn't and be the father that I wish I could have been to them when she was here. So Andy and Harold both park in their respective spots. And, you know, Andy's like, hey, how's it going? Hi. Of course, Harold is all like, buzz off. And by the way, why don't you keep your son away from my daughter? And of course, Andy's like, well, I don't think that's how it went. So Harold is like, well, then tell me why Amy would associate with your misfit. He is definitely, Harold is definitely profiling Ephraim just based on probably how he dresses, the fact that he and Bright got into a fight, this whole, oh, my son can do no wrong type of attitude. And the same with his daughter. I get he wants to protect his daughter from this big city kid who, who looks like he listens to grunge music. And he dresses like Kurt Cobain. Well, he doesn't wear flannel, but even still. The short sleeves over long sleeves. I love how Andy comes back with, well, he said something about a crack deal. Harold just, like, looks at it, uh, Andy with a smirk like, yeah, right. You think you're so funny. Andy has had enough. He's like, you know what, doctor, if you can get over whatever your problem is, we might be able to teach each other a thing or two. And of course, Harold's like, what might you be able to teach me? It's like, well, how about to be not a jerk? One thing, you're too... Harold is just so much of a stuffed shirt, old-fashioned guy. Nose in the air. And it, it wouldn't even have had to have been Andy as a doctor that came into Everett. It could have been any doctor and Harold would have stuck his nose in the air. The whole term, one town, one doctor. That's not how the world works. Okay, interesting. So, Andy brings up four-year-old Samuel Feeney, Nina's son, and what's going on with him with that, that cough that he's got. He brings up how Sam has a chronic cough that Dr. Harold Abbott can't diagnose. You're just giving him, like, cough syrup. And Andy's a big city doctor. The big city really has nothing to do with it, of course, but... One doctor may know a little more and be able to look in areas that another doctor might not even have thought of. As Andy tells him, you might want to look at contributing factors outside of the pulmonary region. Because then he look at his finger. His fingers looked probably like they were chapped, but honestly, those fingers lo- looked like they had like red tips, almost like he dipped them in red Kool-Aid dust. Granted, that was probably just for effect for the show. And Andy mentions a slight cutaneous rash on his fingertips. Andy tells them it's an obvious sign of the fungus spore trichosis, a.k.a. the gardener's disease. Does that have anything to do with Sam and his little garden hut greenhouse that he's got going on? He's probably out there with bare fingers, bare hands, no gloves on, I bet. 
So I'm looking up the sporotrichosis, also known as Rose Gardner's disease, is an infection caused by a fungus called sporothrix. This fungus lives throughout the world in soil and on plant matter such as sphagnum, moss, rose bushes, and hay. People get sporotrichosis by coming in contact with the fungal spores in the environment. Cutaneous skin infection. I'm sorry, guys. I can barely pronounce these words. It's the most common form of the infection. It, it, it occurs when the fungus enters the skin through a small cut or scrape, usually after someone touches contaminated plant matter. Skin on the hands or arms is most commonly affected. Gotcha. Oh, here we go. Look at this. Pulmonary lung sporocrosis is rare. Symptoms include cough, shortness of breath, chest pain, and fever. Alright, alright, gotcha. So yeah, he's been, Sam's been in that little mini greenhouse, working with bare hands on those plants, touching stuff that he probably really should have gloves. And honestly, Nina should be monitoring that. Granted, she probably didn't even think anything of it. You know, he's just playing with, you know, his, his little garden that he's got going on. So Andy's instructing... Dr. Abbott to get Sam off that cough medicine and get him onto something else. Suggest a saturated solution of potassium iodine before his situation worsens. And Harold just kind of looks at Andy, cocks his head like, I don't think he's actually considering that, but he's like, oh, this, this doctor here is telling me what I should be doing. And Andy's like, oh yeah, not bad for a nutbag, huh? Because remember the nutbag comment that Harold made as he is crossing the street? Andy's like, hey, you think that's impressive? Wait till you see what I can do with my hands. Because, you know, he's a brain surgeon. So Harold comes back with, well, if you're so smart, where are all your patients? And Andy's like, well, they're just gathering right outside my office now. And Harold looks like, oh yeah, right. No, he like, look, looks. And his eyes are like, what? Every, of course everyone's there because he's not charging anything. And you got a mixture of you know elderly folks, middle-aged people, babies, a lot of people that probably can't really afford Harold's prices even with the insurance that they have or the Medicaid or whatever you want to call it. Oh, Harold comes over and says, you can't charge people nothing. It's like, excuse me, you can do whatever he wants. Within reason of the law. Ha <laughs> oh, ha! Remember the guy who was trying to get Harold to diagnose his knee out on the sidewalk instead of making an appointment? He looks at Harold and says, Stay out of this, doctor. I can't diagnose you without an appointment. <laughs> yeah. You know Harold does not know his mother switched sides and started working for Andy also. Yeah. So Andy's like, alright, calm down everybody, hold on. I mean, Dr. Abbott has got a point here. I can't just charge nothing. Because from this moment on, I'm doubling my prices. I'll just kind of like, oh yeah, that's funny. Oh, oh, he, he sees his mother like, oh, so you're a part of this madness now, mother. And she's like, what was I supposed to do? You got rid of me. You fired your own mother, Harold? Seriously? And then he fires back with, you quit. But she points a finger at him so you cut back my hours. And she's like, don't give me that bogus reason why. So you know the real reason the whole town does. And he just like, 
you have done some ludicrous asinine things in your lifetime. Like, oh man, who talks to their mother that way? Such big words for this big Dr. Abbott. He's like, oh, working for this man that takes the cake, mother. And she's like, move it or lose it, Junior. She does refer to him as Junior quite a bit because, of course, he is Harold Abbott Junior, not Senior. On the side of this building right next to Andy's new office is a large picture that says Everwood Historic Gold Mine. It's your town. And it's got a mixture uh, of bright yellow in the background. It's got like one of those uh, mining operation things going up that almost looks like one of those old... uh, telephone, um, what do they call those? I can't remember. Because I looked it up, and it says, like, you know, telephone tower, but then now we have, like, these cell phone towers and stuff like that. But I can just imagine them, like, in a field, like, filled with those telephone towers that are stretching. Anyway, anyway. Um, but this picture's got one of those type of things that's actually used for mining. It's got an old prospector with an old hat on. Um, and it's got Everwood Historic Gold Mine in gold, uh, red lettering, and it's just, it's, it's cool. Granted, I think, I mean, it's colorful enough, but I think you could really make it pop with some. I'm not an artistic person, but I could definitely see, like, scrap that and use some other colors and stuff like that. (laughs) The whole line of fever, like, oh, when she's... They see Edna push Harold out of the way. They go, oh! <laughs> they know these two are related. Mother and son. Even Andy smiles as well. Like, oh. All right, now we cut back to school. It's a new day. Ephraim is trying to go out of his way now to avoid Amy because Bright let it slip about the fact that Amy's got a boyfriend and how Amy's just using Ephraim because his dad's the doctor. Oh, he turns right around after she says hey and he starts walking in the opposite direction. And of course she expected he wasn't going to talk to her so she brought a peace offering. She bought another copy of the book that was ripped up. Either that or at least you, like, uh, taped it together. I don't know. And he turns around. He's like, why should I talk to you so you can lie to me some more? This nice girl that talks to him. And, of course, she wants something from him. But then again, he kind of called that when he was sitting on that bunch with her saying, why are you talking to me? Because most girls like you wouldn't even breathe around guys like me. And she's like, well, I didn't lie to you, Ephraim. I just didn't tell you the whole truth. And he's like... Do you have a boyfriend? She's like, yes. And with that, he just turns, starts walking away. And she's like, no, I want you to meet him. If you do, you'll understand. Like, yeah, that's on my list of things to do today. Right between picking up my dry cleaning and chopping off my hand. As he lifts his hand up for emphasis. She explains her boyfriend's in Denver. It's three hours away from here. Four by bus. And of course, if they want to make it back by dinner, they have to leave now. And he looks at her like, you're serious about this? And she's like, come with me. And after that, if you don't, you don't have to talk to me again ever again if you don't want to. Yeah, she does have an ulterior motive with this meeting of her boyfriend. And everyone ends up going along with her because, you know, 
what else can he do? I mean, the only other option is just to turn away and say, no, I'm not going to do that. But deep down, Ephraim's got a good heart. And maybe he wants to learn more about what this whole situation is. So, at Andy's new office, workday's done, the patients are gone, Edna's got her motorcycle jacket on, she's like, I'm Audi 5000, he's like, hold on there a second. Yeah, Andy wants to know what's up with her jumping ship at her son's doctor's office and coming to work for him. It just seems like the Abbots have ulterior motives when it comes to being nice to the Browns. There's a reason there. They're not just being hospitable. There is a reason. They want something or they're... I, I don't know. And she explains to him that she wasn't... Edna was not entirely forthcoming regarding her previous employment and why she left or was fired by her son. I love how she refers to her son as an old tight ass. She calls him Sparky. What's up with that? I'm interested. Where did this nickname come from? So Andy kind of picks up on what's going on. It's like, look, Edna, I'm happy to have you work here for me, but if working for me is some type of a revenge scheme, like, against your son, like you're trying to stick it to him, I really don't need that in my life. So she says, no, 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 I actually need this job. And Andy's like, you want to tell me what happened? And Edna's husband... Harold Abbott Sr. passed away two years ago. And then she ends up getting remarried. Well, apparently in that small town, her getting remarried, um, you later will learn who she's married to. It caused quite a scandal in the community. And, of course, Harold Abbott Jr. thought it was affecting his business. What a selfish move! I can't believe you wouldn't stand by your own mother. Just because of what people think, you just let her go. Come on. He is a tight ass. And apparently, Harold was never crazy about Edna's new beau, new boyfriend, husband, whatever you want to call him. And he cut back her hours, so she quit. It's like, yeah, what else are you going to do? You need the money. Your son's not going to give you the hours. And he's doing it just out of anger and... And, and, and spite. It's like, come on. This adds to more layers of Harold. We, in season one and throughout the show, we see many layers of Harold Abbott Jr. And Andy's like, well, how soon after your husband passed did you remarry? Two months, guys. But then again, it's like, that's up to Edna. If she wants to move on that fast, that's her business, right? And, and, you know, she says, do I look like the morning type? Morning type to you? And he's like, well, not really. And it's like, no. She keeps her feelings bottled up inside. She is really good about, you know, masking her emotions and stuff like that. Edna is a hard nut to crack. But we do see in seasons upcoming... There, she, as well as her son, do have many layers. They do have feelings. It's just, you gotta peel through those layers to be able to get to them. And they are, they're human. They, 
they suffer, they bleed just like all of us do. And some people just, they keep their feelings close to their heart, close, you know, under the vest. And I think the hostility that Harold has towards, you know, his, his mom's new husband and the fact that she got remarried two months after, you know, his dad passed, he worshipped his dad, according to Edna. Loved him, just worshipped the ground he walked on. And that to anybody, if you lost a parent and say your surviving parent remarried shortly after the death, I can definitely see where there would be some anger and resentment and hurt. She says that Harold never really got on with his dad, as in they probably didn't always see eye to eye. And he worshipped him, and they were basically exactly alike. Because, yeah, you look at Harold, you hear, like, the words that he uses, they're just so old-fashioned, if you will. Very, yeah. Even in season two, we do see a flashback of Harold as a young boy, and he's really prim and proper, buttoned up, you know, vest and all that stuff. This is interesting. I like this question that Andy asks. Do you think it's possible that a father and son who don't get along can actually have something in common? He, of course, you you listen to the words, you know that he's kind of thinking of himself and Ephraim, how they don't really get along. And that the fact that maybe they themselves could have something in common. They're both approaching this move with very different ways to go about it. Andy sees it as a new beginning. Ephraim sees it as a journey to hell, I guess, if you want to call it that. And Edna says, in my experience, when a father and son don't get along, it usually means they got everything in common. Um, you know, people have kids and they say, wow, it's like looking in a mirror at my child. They are so much like me. And the fact that, yeah, when, when, when kids and parents fight, it's because you're pretty much fighting with yourself because you're both the same type of person. You're both at odds. You're both coming to blows because neither of you is willing to back down. So we hear a honk from outside and... Edna says, there's my hunk of burning love right out the waiting for me. So she goes out there. Andy goes over the window, kind of puts his fingers between the blinds. Irv! Irv, the bus driver, is married to Edna. And Irv is, yes, he's an African-American man. He's a person of color. But it's just, I mean, I, I can see where the town would be close-minded and stuff like that. And just, it, it's... A town that they want things to stay the, stay the same. They're not really open to changes. And anyone gets divorced in that town or separated or whatever, the town is just going to eat them alive. Like, what happened? Blah, blah, blah. What did you do? Blah, blah, blah. And stuff like that. But he's like, oh, this is so sweet. They're, I, I love these two together. I always have. And I bet Andy watching this is kind of missing his wife right now. Alright, now we're at the hospital. And Amy and Ephraim are staring in at this young man who's lying in a coma. His head bandaged up. You got wires and IVs going inside into him. 
there's even like patches covering his eyes probably to keep the glare out even though he's uh <gasps> excuse me in a coma an Ephraim asks so this is your boyfriend and Amy says Ephraim Brown meet Colin Hart Colin Hart guys is going to be a running story arc throughout season one and we're gonna learn more about this guy as the episodes go on and Ephraim kind of get, or excuse me, Ephraim. Amy gives Ephraim a little backstory on Colin, how he grew up down the block from her. She says, we grew up together, we did everything together. He was the first boy I ever hated. The first boy she ever hit, kissed. And she says how Bright and Colin were best friends. They were always getting into trouble. So Colin is right around Bright's age, which is probably 16, 17. And she explains what happened to land Colin in the coma that he's in right now. Last 4th of July, they decided to swipe Colin's dad's truck. So they went for a joyride, Colin drove, there was an accident. She explains how her brother Bright was thrown from the vehicle and he doesn't remember what happened. And by the time the ambulance got there, Colin had fallen unconscious. And he hasn't woken up yet since he's been in a since that accident happened and every night she prays for a miracle but nothing happens so Ephraim's kind of putting the puzzle pieces together here being his dad is a doctor that Amy is hoping I bet anything he's thinking yeah that's why she wants to get to know me because my dad's a doctor that maybe he might be able to help Colin I bet anything that's where his mind is going and she tells Ephraim when I heard about your dad coming to town I thought if anyone could help him help Colin it would be your dad Amy apologizes but it's kind of a dry apology like I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings Ephraim like there's no real emotion there like eh as in it is what it is and you know she wanted to tell him the real reason she was hanging out and talking to him but she didn't know how no I don't think you didn't know how she, you didn't want to say anything Amy and Ephraim's kind of standing next to her on the other side of the window of Colin's room kind of letting this all sink in like not only does the girl that he likes and the first girl that talked to him since he moved there not only does she have a boyfriend but her boyfriend's in a coma and she wants Ephraim's dad to work on him wow that is a lot to take in so now we're in the brown kitchen. We have Delia hop up on the stool, says, wow, it smells good. He's like, yes, which in and, uh, which in and of itself is a success. And he says, only the finest and haute cuisine, which is reheated Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, Kentucky Fried KFC. Woo. So Delia says she's going to set the table. But Andy stops like, oh, no, no, no. This may be my finest meal yet. Why don't you go out to the basement, get the silverware, I'll get the fine china. It's going to be a big thing. You got you to gotta, you gotta celebrate your first successful meal in your new home. So Andy bends down to get something. He sees through the little uh, window pane that Ephraim's home, bringing home, you know, stashing his bike by the garage. And he just turns and walks away. Doesn't even look in the direction of the house. And Andy says to himself, you think, he doesn't even look me in the eyes anymore. And of course, through that little mirror on the wall, you see ghost Julia Brown. She tells him it's because you don't talk to him. 
And he turns to her and says, I talk to him. And she's like, you talk at him. There's a, like, there's a difference. And she gives him some advice. Like, just try asking him how his day was. Try listening. And Andy says, Delia is so much easier. And Ghost Julia says, she's for Andy. It doesn't matter. It's like, okay, that girl is not four years old. What are you, is this a flashback? Because that girl is at least nine. Eight or nine years old. She is not a four-year-old. And Andy says, well, she's always known how much I love her. And somehow I've never been able to get that message through to Ephraim. And, of course, Ghost Julia says, call me an optimist, but this one case, Doctor, this is one case that's not terminal. Like, this can be fixed. It's going to take time, and you guys are going to have to learn how to talk to each other. To each other, not at each other. Okay, this is purely a flashback because she said that Delia was four. Yeah, he's got a beard. I'm confused. And she's like, I know where you should go if something happens to me. And he's like, I don't want to talk about this again. She's like, you should go to Everwood, Colorado. So it was his wife who told him about Everwood, Colorado. That's some random stranger patient. So, Julie explains to Andy that when she was a kid, she and her parents took this train trip across the country. There was a snowstorm in the mountains. They had to stop for a day in a town called Everwood. See, this is back when that train was running through Everwood. Now they don't do that. And she tells him how it was the most beautiful place she'd ever seen. And she says it was on this, this hill surrounded by the Rockies. Colorado Rockies. And she says, I remember thinking even then, this is what heaven must look like. That's deep. That's, that's, wow. Wow, even as a child. Wow, that's very deep. And he asks, there's no chance for this place. There's no chance this place is also a major center for neurosurgery, is it? Ah! Oh! Oh my gosh, I just got it! I just got it! Colin Hart in the coma. Yes! Oh my gosh! I just, wow. Did she say anything to that? Oh, that's right. This is a f f flashback. But I just, I, I thought of that. And she's like, no, no, no. No more working for the rich and famous doctor. Even small town folk need medical miracles. He's like, ah, oh, I gotta start writing this stuff down. And she's like, just remember one thing. Everwood, Colorado. She says, that's where I'll be. Well, the ghost of her will be there. And he's like, honey, you can't be in the Bahamas. She, nope. Everwood or bust. He says, that's where, then that's where I'll be too. Granted, they're just talking about this, like, if it ever happens, not that it ever would, but now that it has happened. So his wife is what brought him to Everwood. And Delia again comes into the living room. The last time she was walking past his bedroom and saw him kind of lightly swaying back and forth like he's dancing with his wife. Now she sees him on the couch with his arms stretched along the back of it almost like you know how sometimes when you're um riding with someone like in a truck and they stretch their arm across the back of it almost like it's almost like they want to put an arm around your butt it's like this is the next best thing is just putting the arm across the back of the seat and he finally comes out of it and notices that delia is standing there looking at him like what's you're doing it again, Dad. He doesn't say that, but... And he pulls his arm back from, you know, the top of the couch. And he looks at Delia and says, Delia, we should talk about this. She says, it's okay, Dad. I know what's wrong with you. And he's surprised, like, you do? 
and she tells him, you have a distraught heart. Oh, what Mr. Irv told her. Oh. And he looks at her and he says, yeah, yeah, I do. And his eyes, you can tell, are starting to get watery. And he hugs her and he cries. Oh my God, my heart, my heart. Great Williams is such a, guys, I want to play this clip. This is so beautiful. Just him just telling Delia how much he loves her. And she's like, I love you too, Dad. It's like, oh my God, I love this. Listen, uh, Delia, we should talk about this. It's okay, Dad. I know what's wrong with you. You do? You have a distraught heart. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Come here. <laughs> I love you so much, kiddo. I How was your day? It was okay. Found out I'm in love with the girl who's in love with the guy in a coma, but other than that, it was pretty standard. About the other day, I, I said some things I didn't mean. We both did. And that comment about my beard? Now that I meant. <laughs> I'm not shaving it, you know. So don't. It's ugly, but it's also kind of distinguished. Distinguished? Why do you say that? I don't know. It just is. You play so well. I've forgotten how good you are. Mom used to say I had your hands. So while Andy is hugging Delia and they're crying and everything, you hear this soft sound of music playing. And they go into, I guess if you want to call it a parlor, if the other, if the area they were in was the living room, maybe this is the parlor where the piano is. And they're watching Ephraim, who has not touched a piano probably since his mother passed, because, you know, it hurt too much. And they're just in awe of, like, whatever has awoken in Ephraim to get him to play. Delia excuses herself to go finish setting the table. And Andy decides to take his wife's advice and just talk to Ephraim, ask him how his day was. And Ephraim says it was fine. And Andy mentions about the other day look 
about yesterday, I said some things I didn't mean. And Ephraim, who's still playing, not even looking at Andy, says, we both did. And uh, <laughs> Andy says, I don't care what you say about my beard. I'm not shaving it. And Ephraim says, that, I mean, it is kind of ugly, that comment I, I, I said about your beard being ugly. But, I mean, it's also kind of distinguished. And it makes me think of uh, when Julia had mentioned that about um, Andy growing a beard and how she thinks it'd be distinguished and stuff like that. So, I like how they've kind of forgiven each other. Like, they're, they're moving past that fight, putting it behind them, and just starting fresh with just, just talking, just, you know, checking in with each other. And then, of course, Irv Harper comes in with the closing quote. But of course, uh, before that, real quick, when we go back to Ephraim telling Andy how his day was, he says, I'm just in love with a girl who's in love with a guy who's in a coma. No big deal. Well, Andy, you wanted some form of brain surgery or something to use your skilled hands on. There you go. There they sat, father and son, like they were sitting together for the first time. No. I wasn't there the day Dr. Brown's life changed forever. But I was around for many days thereafter when he and his family would call Everwood their home. Okay, so I want to go with the character that absolutely stole my heart this episode. I'm going to go with Andy Brown. Because such a transformation starts to slowly take place with him in this move. He's just so ready and so optimistic about this change and everything like that. And just meeting all these new people that aren't exactly receptive to his arrival. And whereas Delia seemed to have a decent first week of school, we don't really hear about it. But Irv is there to kind of help her along. She's not worried about school. She's worried about her dad and kind of what's going on with him. You know, seeing him talking to someone that isn't there. Basically, he's talking to, you know, her dead mother. And Ephraim even sees that too, but he decides to throw that in his father's face when they have a fight. Which, that, you did not need to say that. I think the person who needs to grow a heart, even though this is the first episode, I'm going to go with Harold, Dr. Harold Abbott Jr. And the Sweetheart episode, oh, Sweetheart Award of the episode, that person is going to go to Irv, Irv Harper. Yes, he's such, I just, oh, he's such a sweet guy, he just, you know. His introduction with, with Delia on the bus and then him just taking the time to sit with her and talk to her about, you know, her worries about her dad and what he's going through and everything like that. And if I had to go with a moral for this episode, I'm going to say that change, I'm not going to lie, change is difficult. And moving to a new place where you don't know anybody is difficult. But those are the times, especially if this move is right after losing someone. This is when a family needs to really hold on to each other and stick together and support each other. And this definitely, for the Browns, this is a new beginning for all of them. And they finally get to settle in 
as Irv closes out the episode and saying that I wasn't there for Dr. Brown. I didn't see the day that, you know, he lost his wife and everything, but I was there for a few days after when the Brown family finally called everyone home. I, I love that quote. I love how that just kind of fits right and snugly in there at the end. All right, let's talk about the next episode, season one, episode two, entitled The Great Dr. Brown, which aired on September 23rd, 2002. Oh my goodness. This episode aired the same day that I started my new job at Hollywood Video, which would later lead to me meeting the man who would later become my boyfriend and then husband. Amazing, amazing. I'm sure I'd tape this off the television so I wouldn't miss it. In this episode, when Andy and Ephraim's fragile relationship is further strained when it appears that Andy is once again putting work before family, meanwhile, as the town of Everwood celebrates its annual Fall Thal Festival, Ephraim's interest in Amy continues to blossom and Delia gets into trouble at school for questioning, questioning her teacher's antiquated rules. All right, we finally get to see Delia at school and just going through issues at school and stuff like that. And the family's still adjusting to Everwood and trying to find their place and everything. Ephraim's relationship with Amy, at least definitely in season one, is 100% one-sided when it comes to his infatuation with Amy. And I kind of think, I kind of think that Amy does take advantage of Ephraim's niceness and everything. Maybe a little bit. Well, if I think about it now, I mean, she's just looking for someone to talk to. Especially when it comes to her boyfriend, Colin. And she's still giving us a little bit of a backstory on her relationship with him. And Ephraim just heart eyes emoji all day long with her. Yeah, we can look forward to that in two weeks. If you'd like to follow along with the podcast, you can go to facebook.com slash I left my heart in Everwood or just facebook.com Everwood the podcast. On Twitter, it's Everwood Podcast. You can go there and follow along to find out about upcoming episodes, trivia questions, fun stuff like that. And on Instagram, it's going to be under the LBOM Wonder Years podcast. The same, if you want to send me an email, it's going to be LBOM, LBOM Wonder Years podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the pilot episode. Have a good day, everybody. Bye bye.